Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Backyard Professor live show tonight. I have rounded up a whole cadre of different types of professors for tonight's show, and you guys are going to love what these guys have got for us. Let's, uh, let's just get going here, get started, and we shall... Have a splendiferous fun evening compared to this entire long <laughs> conference day. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I just realized something. I just outdid Conference for Excitement in one minute than they had in eight hours. That's got to be a world record. <laughs> so I have two of my lovely dear friends here, Rebecca Biblioteca, the schoolyard professor, and I've got my good friend Landon Brophy, the junkyard professor. How are you guys doing tonight? We are fabulous. Just recovering, yep, like you said, from the conference weekend and excited to be here with you and all your uh, viewers tonight. We are going to have some fun. Um, let me just briefly explain with you. To, I've already told everybody this, but I get to do it for those who haven't seen me or heard me yet. Um, Rebecca and Landon do the Mormonish podcast, and I watched several of their podcast but this one that we're going to do tonight is bless their hearts they agreed to come on and do a repeat podcast for you my audience simply because i watched this podcast and i was i quite frankly i was flabbergasted i was overwhelmed and uh the work the research that landon and rebecca has done on this topic which is an amazing topic you guys because this is the brand new church topics, gospel topics essay that they put. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys. Did the church put this essay out since being fined by the SEC? Yeah, it was put out on March 10th. And it's not a gospel topics essay like you think of the standard ones. Oh. Uh, there's, they have what's called gospel or, or they're called uh, topics essays. Topics and so it's in the topics essay and they put it out March 10th. Uh, just after they kind of snuck it in real quietly. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> Don't they blare, blare it out with the Moroni's trumpet on the temple anymore? <laughs> so let's say hi to the audience real quick. Looks like we have Dan Vogel. Welcome, my friend. Mark Crispin, Peter Higgs. Good to see you. Liz, 
Yeah, baby. For Mark Crispin. I always have to do that. Yeah, baby. Peter Higgs, welcome. Mo, see you. Good to see you. Looks like we've got a crowd that's gathering. Welcome, everybody. We love having you here. Love these guys in the chat. Daisy May, good to see you. All right. So, oh, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to put a brag note here. It's going to cover you up a little bit, Rebecca. But Daisy May says, the Mormonish episode on this topic essay was amazing. Great job. I heard about it from you. So, see, I'm spreading the word for you guys. <laughs> well, Daisy, we are going to bring you our lovely hosts of that. And we are going to, we've got, we've, we're going to do a lot of repeat. But with me questioning, we're probably going to get some new information also. So, Okay, so this this essay, um, let, let's just be frank, today in conference, and I know I made a big deal about this for about the week and a half or two after, so did you guys actually, you did wonderful jobs covering the, I think all of us podcasters talked about this SEC fine, and I was... I was indicating that I really think this general conference is going to be significant because now the word... From my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> the first president, just three, the first presidency, were the only ones that knew what was going on. Even Boyd K. Packer wasn't allowed in on it when he was alive. He wanted to be, and they said, uh-uh, it's on an only, need-only-know basis, and you don't need to know. Boyd K. Packer was told that, from what I've heard. So, only the first presidency, and now that this has all come out, now the Quorum of the Twelve knows. Now the Quorum of the Seventies know. So I was speculating, now we get to see how deep this corruption goes from breaking the law, hiding money, being filthy, filthy, stupid, dumb, unbelievably, insanely non-Jesus rich, and... Everyone voted to sustain. But did you notice what they did with the cameras? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Boom, boom, boom. Wow. Yeah. They didn't show the stand. Oh. Yeah. Although nobody opposed. And, and if you were to oppose, you are supposed to talk to your stake president. So there we go. So we know how deep the corruption goes. For real now, we've got the evidence. I, I'm pretty sure everybody's got to be in the... Can you imagine being one of the quorum of the 12 or one of the 70 wondering they're doing that. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being the auditor who had to give up and give the report today. That's oh. or uh, yesterday on the second <laughs> session. That was the guy I was watching. <laughs> was that that up or what? That was <laughs> ludicrous. Well, we want to report brethren. Everything is well. Thank you. <laughs> That's status quo. That but to me was where all the suspense quo. was for this conference is what's going to happen with that report? Are they going to just do away with it like they did with the membership numbers when they were going down? Or are they going to say everything is fine, in which case they're basically saying the procedures that we've been doing uh, that were that got us fined are all in accordance with our policies? I mean, what were they going to do? And and I think RFM su summed it up best in his conference uh his after conference report where, you know, the, the silence was really telling uh, by the fact that they said exactly the same thing they say all the time. Uh, in essence, uh, we know from the report, and, and there were more than just the first presidency who knew about it. The presiding bishopric also knows 
about it. So those six people know about it. And uh, the fact that they got up there, they actually had done an audit on it in 2014 and 2017. And in the audit report, they said, you need to fix this. This isn't right. And they ignored it. So they found something. And yet they reported to the church in 2014 and 2017 that everything was 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 in order. And it wasn't. And so they didn't report it. And so now we see that they're just going to rubber stamp anything. And you can't believe anything that they say in their financial report. It's just it's useless is what we found out today or yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're not. They're never going to be open with the truth. This church of truth is going to always hide the truth. And folks, tonight you're going to see that with an absolute astonishing vengeance. Why don't I let you guys take it away and let's get this going. And you tell us what is this essay and what is it about? Let's do a line by line, just like you did. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll go through it line by line. Basically, um, if you want to pull up the first slide there, Carrie, um, this is the, the uh, essay on church finances. If you look over on the left-hand column there, you can see that there's quite a few different topics, essays. These aren't the standard gospel topics, essays that you think of, but they are topics, essays that they put out. And of course, you know, the church after they uh, said they were going to pay the fine, uh, they came out and, and said, you know, that we consider the matter closed. Well, after <laughs> they said they considered the matter closed, they, they put out this essay which is basically, I think, to reassure all the members that all is fine in Zion. The church finances have always been under the Lord's control, and, and so there's no need to worry. And so they put it out, and we started reading through it, and we just kind of started laughing because, uh, as, as you may know, that uh, Rebecca and I uh, run a book club, the Good Book Club. And one of the things that we had run into as we were doing a lot of our reading is we kept coming across counterfeiting. It, it was popping up everywhere, and we were going, where is this counterfeiting coming from? What? I, I've never heard of this before. And so we decided to read one of the books we decided to read was called Secret Combination, Evidence and Early uh, Mormon Counterfeiting. Uh, it's by Kathleen Melanakis, and she actually came to our book club. And, and uh, uh, But uh, we went through her book, and we put together some of the presentations. So some of this came from that. Uh, and then the rest is uh, information that we that we went through as we went through the essay itself. And it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, if you've read the Gospel Topics essay, you know how the church operates. They you, you start finding their little weasel words or they they start pointing to things that kind of key you in that something isn't right with what they're saying or they're trying to divert. It's kind of like a magician who tries to divert you from what they're saying. So whenever they say they did this like all other churches or, you know, like other people of the time, they did this. That's usually a clue that why are they saying that? Why are they trying to make it sound like this is normal operating procedure? Is it really normal operating procedure? So when we start seeing those in there, we'd start highlighting those and then we'd start going and looking up. What is this? And is this is this in fact true? Did they really operate that way? So when we start reading through it, and, and we do have the gospel, we, we do have the essay. We're going to read through it line by line. Uh, we'll have uh, Carrie, you'll read some of it. Rebecca will read some of it. I've highlighted in there, uh, when you see bold areas, those are areas that are either those magic words that make you say, oh, let's look a little deeper, 
or they're words that, that point you to, um, oh, who's this guy or what's this thing about? I haven't heard about this. Let me dive into that a little bit more. And so when you see those, we're going to dive into those things a little bit more. Um, so that's basically how we got into it. Rebecca, am I missing anything? I don't think so. I would just like to say that I think uh, the church auditor's report was a perfect segue to this because they basically said, it's all status quo. We're doing exactly what we've always done. This is it. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. They are doing exactly what they have always done. <laughs> this is where it backfires yep. <laughs> for someone yep. who looks a little deeper. <laughs> yeah, That's funny. Yeah, we're going to show they keep doing it the same way. All right. Status quo. They're right. So let's get started with, uh, if you go to the next slide, uh, we're going to get started with a little bit about churches and taxes. And, and you got to understand a little bit about churches and what they have to do as part of the taxes. Um, so as we all know that churches are, are tax exempt, I think most all of us know that they don't pay taxes. So what is the requirements for taxes? What do they have to report? What do they have to report to the government? Where did all this come from? And initially, uh, initially these came from, uh, there, there's kind of two acts of Congress that, that we can go back to. The first one's the Revenue Act of 1943. And this introduced the requirement that tax-exempt organizations had to file an annual return that laid out the organization's gross income, receipts, and disbursements. So all uh, tax-exempt organizations had to start providing this information to the government, with one exemption. They exempted religious organizations from this. So from 1943 to 1969, ever since then, tax-exempt organizations have had to provide it. Religious organizations have not. And it's important to keep in mind that the church is not a charitable organization. They're Boy, not you can say that again. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they are a religious organization. And that puts them in a completely different place in the tax bracket than a charitable organization or any other tax-exempt organization. Religion has almost free reign. Uh, you, you don't even have to you don't even have to file anything with, uh, with the uh, IRS. I went through the, the, I think it's 501c3 requirements. If you're religion, you don't even have to file anything. Most of them do register with the government in order to let the government know we're out here and it helps, it helps their people to be able to claim themselves as tax exempt on their taxes because you have registered with them and they recognize that you're a religious organization, but you don't have to. You don't have to report anything as a religious organization. So it's really free, free run. Um, so 1969 though, uh, they decided that, to look at this and the house came up with, uh, during the tax reform act of 1969, they came up with a version that completely eliminated the religious uh, exemption for the filing requirements. So had that gone through, all churches would have had to report on their taxes and on their on their finances, the same thing as, as the other charitable organizations. However, we all know how our legal system works. Um, you have to pass it through the Senate as well. And the Senate's where the big money is. Um, so they started pulling in, religion started coming in and, and hitting the senators up and testifying in the Senate hearings. Multiple religions sent, sent uh, people there to testify on their behalf. Um, BYU, uh, President Ernest Wilkinson was sent by the LDS Church, and he went and he uh, he went and made the argument that hey, look, this is extremely burdensome for us 
as churches to have to fill out all these tax reform, all these tax forms, um, when in the end, you don't get anything out of it anyway. We're still tax exempt. You're not going to get anything. This is just a big burden that you're putting on us with no benefit to the public, no benefit to um, uh, to, to the coffers of the government by doing that. To me, that's that was really a kind of a ridiculous argument because you know, Boy Scout Troop 449 has to fill out this this tax paperwork and they can do it. How can a church or a religious university that has hundreds of maybe thousands of employees can't fill out the, the paperwork on this? Um, so that that was the argument that they made. The Catholics made a little bit different argument. Um, they said, look, we shouldn't be because we don't go out and ask the public for donations, we shouldn't have to file anything with the public. We're only asking our members to donate. So those donations are between us and our members, and the government shouldn't be at all involved in that. That's between the church and its members, and, and we shouldn't be involved. Yeah. Um, they also argued that, why are you doing this? There's no compelling reason to force us to do this Nobody's really there's there hasn't been a problem. We've been doing this since 1943. Nobody's taking advantage of the tax laws. Nobody's building up big treasuries or anything like that. There's no reason yeah, to do this. The Catholic Church was saying that. Yes. The richest yes. entity on the planet. Nobody. Yes. <laughs> We're not building up treasuries. <laughs> We're making <laughs> buildings. <laughs> We're doing like the Mormons will do in 75 years. Oh. Well, I think we have to remember the Catholics are are individual dioceses. So, you know, the dioceses themselves aren't right. amassing this. You know, maybe the central Catholic government, you know, universal church uh, was right. very wealthy. Right. But the dioceses weren't exploding at, at this time. And most churches at this time weren't extremely wealthy. This was before the mega churches and, and that, you know, it's all yeah, the yeah. little community churches. Pre-Joel Osteen. They just couldn't see what it would become, right? <laughs> wow, exactly right. <laughs> so as usually happens, money wins out on these. And, you know, the big the big religions were able to, to get persuade the, the Senate not to pass that. And they continued with the religious, religious exemption. And so ever since then, Religions have not had to report and they have not had to uh, they, they haven't had to say anything uh, to the government and report things. So it's important to, to differentiate a few things here. So just because they're not required to report doesn't mean that they can't report. So many churches do report to their to their members. And the reason they do that is they find that if they're transparent with their finances, they get more donations. Their their congregation. Oh, 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 excuse me. You needed to be te teaching in general conference today, dude. Are you serious? I don't think the Mormons have had that revelation. The, the Mormons are a special are a special case. As I said, most well, churches, sure most churches, transparency that people say, I see what my money's going for. I see what my church is doing with it. I see the good that's coming of it. I'll make a donation. Because most churches, you're not required to make a donation to go to Thanks. your temple, to be sealed to your family, to, you, you know, you're, you're right. going to heaven isn't based on you paying a tithing. You pay it because you want to make a donation to the church and help out. 
not because it's going to seal your salvation in the end. Well, and transparency is a slippery slope. Imagine if they start on transparency with finances. What else might they have to be transparent about? We just can't go there. I'm Very just true. saying the woman's got a point here, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, it's very so most churches do, uh, even though they don't have to report it to the government, they do report it to their constituency. Um, and there's a big difference between reporting and transparency. You can provide a report and that report may say absolutely nothing and be useless, as we saw today in conference. The church did report on its finances today. I have we have no idea how much they have. We don't know what they used it for. We, you know, the, the report gave us nothing. But so everything is fine, brethren. Didn't you hear him say that? Don't you believe him? And that's that's exactly what we learned today in conference. So transparency is different than reporting. Um, you can give reports that are just reports, or you can give transparent reports. And so you know, what, what we're really looking for, what most people want to see is a transparent report that you can actually make sense of and that financial people can look at and say, oh, they are doing things correctly or, oh, this money is being used in the way that people think that it's being used. Or at least they can look at it and say, we know what the money's going for and we can make an informed decision as to whether we're going to donate to that or not. And I think that's the key is that informed decision. Of, of whether if, if you want to give all your money to the church and you know they're making, uh, you know, billions of dollars off of it, it's your money. You're free to do that. But you should have informed consent that, man, uh, could I give this to the church and build billions or should I give it to a charity like the Red Cross that might spend it and help refugees somewhere? Um, you know, you, you can make that choice yourself. So. Okay, the, the, next, uh, the next one up is, has the church ever reported then? Have they been transparent? Have they ever had to report their finances? And the answer to that is surprisingly, yes, they have reported. Um, I couldn't find a lot on what they reported during these reporting times, but they did, they did give some report that indicated what the money was being used for, and, and they were giving it in a general conference-type setting. They were reporting on the finances of the church. The first period was 1832 to 1838, so just after the church started. Um, the second period of reporting was 1877 to 1883. Um, there was some on and off reporting during Brigham Young's time period. Um, he was not real regular on whether he did it or not, but sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. Um, but John Taylor, uh, once Brigham Young died, John Taylor picked it up and started doing reports. And then the last period was 1915 to 1959 that the church provided reports in conference. But as we were researching this, we started noticing something. We kept going, well, why did they stop? What was the purpose that they stopped? And why would they start reporting again? And when we started tying the report start and stop dates, we started finding that every time they stopped a report, it was because something happened that was not good for the church or that the church did not want its members to find out about. And it seemed like when they did start to report, um, it was because of another reason that they wanted to, they had, they had to start reporting it to help their cause in one way or another. So you could, you could tie the reporting to the, the mission, the needs of the church. If they needed it to be reported, they would. And if it hurt them to report it, they stopped reporting it. 
Um, Very self-serving then. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I was thinking today in conference that they might stop reporting. Yeah. I I was surprised they even let monitors stand up myself after listening to him. Of course I I wasn't. Yeah. 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 And and that was surprising to me too, because they basically put the auditor in this, in a position of he's got to basically live right in front of everyone when they know that there was something not right with the finances. Every flipping one of them on that church stand knew that auditor was lying. <laughs> and yet they sustain each other. I'm telling you. I was looking for the sweat beads to start coming down. Yeah. <laughs> his eyes looked a little glazed over, like he was sort of disassociating from his body or either heavily medicated or something. I felt sorry for him. Yeah. So any questions on that? If not, we'll jump into the essay itself. No. Yeah. Let's, let's go. Next okay, slide. Well, Let's get started. Uh, Carrie, do you want to? Yeah, next slide. If you want to go I, ahead and read and just read all the way through that first one. Uh, this is the the actual essay. Uh, it's not that long. Uh, there's probably well, five slides or so that we're going to go through, but uh, let's go oh, ahead. It's, it's so important, though. This is awesome. Okay, so from the earliest days of the Restoration, Revelation outlined aspects of the church's mission that would require temporal means, including caring for the poor, publishing scriptures and other church materials, and building houses of worship. Joseph Smith followed Revelation as well as then-current business models for financing these important endeavors. Subsequent church leaders followed the same pattern, adapting church finances to meet the changing needs of the church. Over time, the church has experienced seasons of financial distress, as well as seasons seasons in which it was able to build reserves. Revelations in 1831 established the law of consecration and stewardship which instructed church members to devote their property to further the Lord's work and alleviate poverty. These revelations also established the office of bishop to receive and distribute consecrated properties. Joseph Smith and other leaders also followed revelations, advising them to manage the church's mercantile and publishing activities through an entity called the United Firm. Okay. One thing we notice in there repeated over and over again is revelation. The church finances are led by revelation. And so we're going to see that. And they start out with the very first revelation on church finance was given in 1831. Of course, the church was started in April 1830. So we're talking, we're within the first year, year and a half uh, that they establish the law of consecration, which we all know is that we're supposed to have all property that we're supposed to donate it all together and it's supposed to uh, be held in common is basically the theory behind the law of consecration. And and this was supposed to alleviate poverty. Now, think about the church in 1831 through, let's say, all the way, let's, let's even go up to 1900. Uh, we know that the law of consecration ended long before that. But is there any point where the law of consecration ever alleviated poverty? Well, I mean, uh, sure. <laughs> you sound so convinced, Carrie. <laughs> in Joseph Smith's house. Maybe in one home, yes. In the <laughs> leader's homes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but the church leader, the, the church members were absolutely um, 
poverty stricken. Most all of the members early yeah. in, there were a few more well-to-do ones than others, but for the most part, the saints were very poor throughout the majority of the, of, of the first 50 years of the church. Uh, they were very much in poverty. Uh, the, the law of consecration uh, never worked to relieve poverty. And we're going to see why here in a little bit, because uh, it, it never was set up really to alleviate the poor and the way it was instituted didn't help the poor. It seemed more to take advantage of the poor than to help the poor. Uh, and the, the, the key thing here that we, that we really keyed in on was this united firm. Um, this sounds very similar to what the church is doing today because it said they set up, they, they set something up to manage the church's mercantile and publishing activities. So this is the non, the non, ecclesiastical things that they set up this united firm for. So we said, what is this united firm? Let's look it up. So we went right to the church's website, right to, uh, in fact, I think it's even this one of these topics essays uh, that, des that describe what the united firm is. So let's, let's go to the next slide and see what the united firm is. And, and I want to emphasize that this is directly from the church's website, uh, this, this united firm. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to read that? Uh, can you can you read that? It's kind of small, I know. Does that? Yeah, it's super. I have a teeny tiny computer, so unless I printed it out ahead of time, I okay, no cannot. I'm very I'll sorry. Ahead. I'll go ahead with it and, and talk talk through <laughs> I'll see it. If I can find my magnifier. Unless I got so close that everyone could see up my nose, and that's not the look we're going for tonight. So no, let's do something else. Well, I'll take I'll take this one and read it. So it says the United Firm was an administrative organization that oversaw the expenditure of church funds between 1832 and 1834. So this is right from the beginning, you know, within two years uh, that they started this. In March 1832, the Lord commanded Joseph Smith to establish this organization in order to coordinate the literary and mercantile establishments of the church in both Ohio and Missouri. Joseph convened a council of high priests in April 1832 in Missouri for this purpose. At the council, Joseph received another revelation. So he gets another revelation here indicating that he, Sidney Rigdon, Newell K. Whitney, Edward Partridge, Sidney Gilbert, John Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, William W. Phelps, and Martin Harris would be part of the organization. So all the leaders are part of the organization. The, rev the revelation further explained that these men could use a portion of the collected funds for their own necessities, and any remaining funds would be for use for church purposes. Wow, that's a convenient revelation that all the leaders to use this fund for their for Jesus their loves the brethren. I'm just saying. And I'm guessing that they all sustained that revelation wholeheartedly without no any opposition. Well, why, yes, I'll sustain that. <laughs> However, they were responsible for the firm's debts because as the leaders, they obviously, who else would be responsible for the debts? But this was all church. This was all money that they were getting in from the church members anyway. So really, the church was responsible for the debts through them. So um, the nine men appointed to the United Firm each had a specific stewardship. Six were stewards over the Revelations, which is a group that became known as the Literary Firm, and oversaw the church's publishing operations. Partridge and Whitney were the two bishops in the church, and Gilbert was an agent to Partridge. Together, these three managed church storehouses in Ohio and Missouri. In 1833, two additional members were added. 
hmm, I wonder why they added two additional members. Frederick G. Williams and John Johnson were added to the firm. This sounds like a Tom Cruise movie, doesn't it? The it firm. does, yeah. <laughs> Both by revelation. Once again, revelation came. Pick these two. Williams, a member of the church's governing presidency, had a large land holdings in Ohio, as did Johnson. Their holdings became resources of the United Firm. Don't so just like today, a, don't yeah. start a conspiracy theory with me. <laughs> so just like today, they're sort of called based on perhaps affluence, perhaps what they can uh, can contribute. Yeah, I don't think we see anything new in this uh, in this uh, mm -hmm. revelation. So for two years, much of the church's business was done through the United Firm including the purchase of property on which the house of the Lord in Kirtland would be constructed. When the saints were driven from Jackson County, Missouri in fall 1833, the church lost two vital components of the firm, Phelps printing office and Gilbert's storehouse. In addition, the United firm had debts from the purchase of goods for the storehouses, a new printing press in Kirtland and land for Kirtland's development. On April 10, 1834, members of the United Firm in Kirtland decided to dissolve the organization, and a few weeks later, the United Firm ceased to function. The Kirtland High Council, formed in February 1834, assumed the role of governing the church's mercantile and publishing efforts. Now, isn't this convenient? It was established by revelation, but how was it terminated? By revelation, of course. No, no. They took a vote. The, the people who paid the debts, the people who got in debt said, oh, oh, we, let's get rid of wait, this. Wait, we're too deep in debt. Let's get rid of this. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's handy. Get it? Handy. <laughs> handy, Any yes. opposed? No, no. <laughs> no opposed. Yep. It was, it was and good. if you do oppose, see your state president. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. Who happens to be one of the people who owns part of this uh, in, in this case. So. Uh, yeah, the, the, they basically got themselves so into debt they couldn't get out, and so they voted to terminate it, and they turned it over to the high council of the church and said, oh, the church now is going to assume all the debts instead of us. We were, we were responsible for these debts. Now we're going to turn it over uh, to the church, and they'll assume the debts. But this all came by revelation. God told us this is how it should run, but after just two years, they'd run up so much debt, they had to get rid of it, and they, they voted and and. It doesn't say the Kirtland was but was revelation. They just seemed to hand that run off, you know. And they they sure got in trouble in Kirtland, didn't they? Yeah, Kirtland oh, was was oh, definitely a financial oh, nightmare. nightmare. So the the last paragraph here is what was really interesting to to me. I, I actually busted out laughing when I started reading this last paragraph. It says, in some editions of the Doctrine and Covenants, the United Firm was called the United Order. And that's not to be confused with the United Order in Utah. They just, they, they used that name again. They kind of recycled it, kind of like the plastic that we're doing now with, uh, with uh, <laughs> President Nelson. <laughs> uh, the United Firm was called the United Order, and code names were inserted in the place of members' names. In addition, language about the firm's purpose was changed so that it referred more generically to caring for the poor. This was done to protect the identity of the firm's members and to keep its purposes confidential. Uh -huh. The names of the individuals were restored to the Doctrine and Covenants in the 1980s, but the word order is still used instead of firm in these other, in these other sections. 
So isn't that interesting? They they kept the name and the purpose of the firm completely so nobody knew who they were. And they were using names. I don't know, Rebecca, did you? Do you I have the list. Yeah, I found the list. I yeah, did. It's, it's like they're playing D&D. &D. I mean, there's Alam, Ahashada, Hora, Malahakalil. And these are, you know, Edward Partridge, John Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery. It's like they're just a bunch of boys playing a game. And then, of course, people are pretty familiar with Joseph, Baruch Al, and Enoch, and how do you say it? Galazam. I mean, it's like they're just playing, but they're not playing because these are lives of people and the money of people. So it's it's just yeah. fascinating. I would love to see a copy of the DNC pre-1980. I do not remember. I mean, I, I know I owned one, I, I did, but I, I don't remember one. that these names are in there. Yeah, I had one and I remember reading those names. And then when I got the new LDS edition, I stupidly got rid of it. Uh, but yeah, I had if anyone one has earlier. one. Yeah, I remember reading those code names. Yeah, yeah, but, but doesn't that sound exactly like what they did here? They were hiding. They they hid the the, the name of the firm. They hid the name. They didn't want anyone to know who was in charge. And yeah. and we saw that in the in this fraud here. They were naming shell managers over the companies that didn't really exist, or the people didn't know they were over these shell companies, having them sign things that they didn't know anything about. And the reason they did it is they didn't want to be responsible for the debts and they didn't want people to come after them. So by <laughs> keeping the names, nobody could come get them for the for the debts of the church. Well, you got to admit, though, I mean, come on, think this through here. The brethren of today studied the history of this and they realized, look, that was given by revelation. We can keep doing it this way. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. They followed this procedure all the way through. <laughs> So, yeah, the United Firm was just one. I I had not heard of the United Firm until I read it, once again, until I read an essay by the church. And all of a sudden I said, what is this? And yeah. boy, that just opened my eyes as I started studying the United Firm and, and what its purpose was and how they used it uh, right yeah, from the start. That's the, remarkable. That's interesting. These so games. this starts right from the very beginning, man. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 1832. They were playing these games right from the start. Wow. So, okay, let's go to the next one. And uh, Rebecca, can you read that one? If not, I'll be happy to. Oh, oh you're your, muted. your microphone went out, Rebecca. Can you? You're muted. Did I? Oh, yes, I'm, I... I'm. Hold it. Hold Everybody's it. muted. Yeah. Sorry, what is this? I'm, Mormonism I'm... live? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm trying to hide Rebecca. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't nobody puts me in a corner. Here we go. Okay, I'm gonna read the second paragraph. <laughs> All right. Like other churches in early America, Latter-day Saint leaders made use of financial tools such as promissory notes, bills of exchange, loans, stocks, and bonds. In 1836, in Kirkland, Ohio, church leaders established the Kirkland Safety Society. I'm sure everyone has heard of that, a banking institution funded by the purchase of stock. The purpose of this institution was to extend Latter-day Saints access to capital and to fund church objectives. Unfortunately, a financial crisis in the United States and Britain in 1837 depleted bank reserves, disrupted land sales, and led to the collapse of numerous banks, including the Kirkland Safely Safety Society. So happening everywhere, of course, not just us, nothing we did, it's beyond our control. 
Uh, two revelations in 1838 marked a change in the church's approach to funding its operations. They emphasized the importance of tithing as a means of financing the work of the church and instituted a council to oversee tithing expenditures, which became known as the Council on the Disposition of the Tithes which sounds to me like something out of Harry Potter. I think <laughs> the council on the disposition of the tithes, very clandestine. And, and I did hear him say that term uh, during the audit report this month uh, or when he said it. I heard him say the council of the disposition of tithes. So I was going, oh, it's it's still there. It's still it's there. It's still there. And the acronym is the Cotatot, I think, something like that, because the church <laughs> loves acronyms. So. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a couple, couple things in this. First off, we, we see the uh, sleight of hand words there. Like, like other churches in early America, the Latter-day Saints used financial tools such as promissory notes, bills of exchange, loan stocks, and bonds. That's true. That's true. And we're going to go over that here in just a second about how early in early America, how uh, the financial system basically worked. Because you did not have a central bank at this time. So you didn't have everybody using the same dollars. What you had was you had local banks, uh, local banks that had reputations and they would back up the money with gold and what was called specie. And they'd bring the money to the, they'd give a promissory note or the bill would be the promissory note. And then they could use that as cash. So you didn't have to haul the gold around. And then you could bring that, that promissory note to the bank and you could exchange that for gold or whatever. And so it was always backed. So as the people had trust in the money because the bank showed itself to be uh, proper and, and that they would uh, assume that the bank was solid, pe it, people would take the risk and take the money in exchange. And that's how they did it. And the other churches did exactly the same thing. That's, that's, that's true. So see, it's all legit. What are you griping about? Absolutely Ryan? legit. The, the one thing that was different is uh, uh, that, one, the church started its own bank, the Kirtland Banking or the Kirtland Safety Society. Now, I looked and I can't say for sure that that no one else did this, but I couldn't find other churches that set up their own banks. Uh, so to, to make it sound like oh, all the churches were setting up their own banks and, and running things this way. I just could not find any evidence that any other churches were setting up banks like this. And to take things even further, they say Kirtland Safety Society, a banking institution funded by the purchase of stock. It was not a banking institution. And we'll go into that in a, in a few minutes. In fact, it was, it was kind of contrary to that because they never got a charter to start a bank. And they actually set it up and called it an anti-banking institution because they didn't have a charter and they weren't legal. So I don't know many churches that set up illegal banks during this time and started printing their own money. Uh, okay, so so what I'm hearing here, my dear friend Landon, is you're trying to say that these guys in this new essay is carefully wording things here just like they did with that young girl that was a few months shy of 15. 
<laughs> exactly. Is that yeah. what I'm hearing here? Okay, I just want to make this sure. is the bank that's a few months shy of 15. <laughs> <laughs> a few months shy of being legal. That's what it is. <laughs> a few steps short of being illegal. Yeah, legal. All right. Interesting. It, it is gel bait. Yes. <laughs> it is gel bait. Not clickbait. Gel bait. Yeah. No kidding. Right. The, the next thing they say is that uh, the, the, the crisis in Britain in 1837 depleted bank reserves, and, and, and we'll get into that as well. Again, uh, not exactly true. The, the bank had actually collapsed. They still continued. That didn't stop them from banking, but they had actually collapsed prior to the, uh, prior to the, uh, the financial crisis. It started a little later in 1837. They collapsed after only two months of operation, so uh, it wasn't. The, the Kirtland Bank did the Kirtland, the Kirtland Bank. Bank, yeah, Just two months, huh? Yeah, but yeah. they kept running for longer than that. But they they oh. they could not they couldn't meet their their financial obligations after two months, and we'll go over that a little bit. And then I want to the, the last thing there that's highlighted in this. You see the eighteen thirty eight. Does that year uh -huh. does that year remind you of anything? Oh my, doesn't it ever? Holy cow. That that's our first one of the first slides. Remember when they stopped reporting the yeah. first time? 1832 yeah. to 1838. They yeah. stopped reporting in 1838, the same time as the Kirtland Safety Society failed. Joseph Smith's on the run. He doesn't have a single friend in Kirtland. Uh, he's sneaking out of the state in a wagon trying to get to uh, Missouri to get out of the state. He actually is arrested and charged and has to pay a fine. Uh, and they stop at that point. They stop reporting when the when the bank crashes. So now, that 1838. Yeah, can I also add something extra? Also, just sure. for yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I remember church history correctly, thanks to my dear friends RFM and Dan Bogle here in the house, uh, 1838 was a very important year, and, and I think this is. What caused Joseph Smith to begin rewriting his revelations and to start rewriting his own history again, too? Right. Uh, that's probably true because he had lost so, all credibility. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 In fact, if we go to the next slide, um, sure. Let, let, let's go to the next slide, and we're going to talk. So, so we're going to backtrack just a little bit. Um, so, okay. in the United States. Um, as we said, there were no there were no central banks. There was there was a young, weak central government. Um, there was a high immigration rate, so many of the people coming in didn't know how the dollar how the economic system even worked when they got here. Um, there were no central banks, as we said. So colonies issued their own currency from their own banks. So colonies might have their own banks, but you could also have a private bank, uh, especially in a lot of the frontier towns and stuff where there wasn't a government established yet. These these People would go and set up a private bank and 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 use the promissory notes. And so, so you're, was, you're showing this money. These examples of the money here are different colonies. Yeah, so this is Jackson, this is actually Jackson County. Uh, so this would have been a, oh. a bank that wasn't a church-owned bank. Um, and I, I can't okay. read what the other one is. Continental Bank or some some something. I, I can't. I can't read it, but but okay. yeah, these were these were some of the. Uh, the, the currencies that were being used at, at the time. And this, this is what these promissory notes look like. And you'll see when we get to the Kirtland Safety Society, they printed their own money that looked very similar. So uh, you'd, you'd go out as a bank and you'd buy these plates. 
and they were fairly expensive to get the plates to produce the to, to produce these uh, uh, bills or this, if you want to call it money, a bond, whatever you want to call these uh, this this currency. And so that's that's uh, exactly what the church intended to do uh, when they when they set up the bank. So um, if we go on, uh, I want to talk a little bit now. Uh, we're we're going to go a little into some church history here. Because of this, because of this, uh, you know, local currency, it it was it wasn't easy to counterfeit, but it was very doable to counterfeit. You know, you might have to have a press. You had to have a press, and you had to have plates, and you had to be able to. So people would print these, and then they would take them out, and they would uh, they they could they'd make counterfeit dollars. So counterfeiting was very uh, popular in the early Americas. And that's one of the reasons that we start running into it a lot in church history is because it was popular during the time. And it was especially popular in the upstate New York area because it was right near Canada. So you could you could oh. make the counterfeit. And if you were going to get caught, you jump across the border real quick yeah. and come back. And so it was very popular in the upstate areas. And it didn't just start with Joseph Smith. Um, that Smith family, uh, you've probably heard of the uh, uh, of the Woodscrape group. You've heard that term before. And or new Israelites. New Israelites. Yeah, yeah. that was a group that uh, Oliver Cowdery's father was was involved in. And there's there's evidence that Joseph Smith Sr. was also involved in it. Uh, there's it, It's not, we don't know 100%, but he was, he seems to be involved in, in some way. And this was started, it was started uh, by a man named uh, Nathaniel Wood in Vermont. And they declared themselves modern Israelites, and they practiced this dietary code. They displayed spiritual gifts and made prophecies. Uh, they built a temple. They they had plans to build a temple. Even mm. um, they practiced polygamy. Uh, does this sound at all familiar? Really? These I was just counting are... it up. Yeah, these guys yep. are great. These are so fascinating to read about them. Love so they, they started right early 1800s, 1800, 1802. This before, you know, Joseph Smith is, is not even uh, born yet at, when, when this happens. Um, but this group was known to harbor counterfeiters. Uh, one of them specifically, his name was Justin Winchell. And Justin Winchell was, was a big, there's a lot written about him as a counterfeiter and, and some of the things he did early on. Um, he shows up in Palmyra at the same time the church is getting set up again. And we start seeing some of these counterfeiters showing up at the same place that the church is going to. We start seeing these counterfeiters. And this is documented in Kathleen Melanakis's book. And, and I'll say, I'll be the first to admit that when you read her book, you kind of go, okay, there's some, th this is evidence, but it's not hard evidence, you know. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence when you start putting it together. It just starts it's, it just starts showing up everywhere. And again, we started seeing it in books that weren't that, that were just church books. We started we were reading books from the church or that were related to the church and counterfeiting just kept coming up. And we're going, what's going on here? Um, Joseph Smith Sr. himself was actually involved in two cases involving uh, counterfeiting. Joseph Smith Sr. Um, really? The, hey, I wonder, I wonder, I'll bet Dan Vogel has this in his early Mormon documents. And, and I was wondering if he did, and I can't see yeah. the chat, so I don't know if someone's chatting oh, or asking can, questions. Uh, Dan's here. Do you have no, anything like that, Dan? Do you remember? 
I'll ask him real quick and see if he responds. Yeah, she 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 notes two different things: Vermont State Treasurer versus Benaya Woodward, and State of Vermont versus uh, Benaya Woodward. This Benaya Woodward is both the cases, and she says in her book that Joseph Smith Sr. Uh, was at times he, we knew he was a treasure hunter. He was looking for Captain Kidd's treasure. Uh, that he also became implemented with one Jack Downing, which seems to be a uh, a, a, a not a real name. Uh, so we're not exactly sure who that is. Uh, oh, gee, the church never changed that, it, did they? As he's the the thirteen extra, whatever the heck they were, they made Shell companies. The company. Yeah, but it says in her book she documents that he turned state's evidence and escaped the penalty by basically. He testified against the guy. Um, oh, so, yeah. Yeah, Dan says, yes, they're all in his first volume. Yeah, yeah. So, he, he has personally told me that uh, this first volume is absolutely impossible to get, but never fear. All five volumes are available for free online. So just so you know, we have access to Dan Vogel's fantastic research. All five volumes, so. Yeah. So, yeah, these are great things. And, you know, Thank sometimes you, it's hard to hard to verify all of this information because it's so scattered and so old on the records. But, uh, right. uh, yeah, so he was never charged, but he turned state's evidence. So he was in order to in, in yeah. order to. Uh, uh, and that's what Dan says. There's no evidence yeah. directly for his senior Joseph Smith senior for counterfeiting that, that he was a actually counterfeiting. But he seems to have been involved in the case somehow, like he knew the counterfeiters or or. Uh, and counterfeiting didn't just involve making the money. There was also distribution. So what they do is they, they'd make the money and then they had like mules who would take the money and they'd take it out and distribute it and try to, try to use it or they'd buy something with it and then they'd exchange it for real currency or someone else's promissory notes and then bring it back. And that's how they'd launder this. Oh, yeah. So yeah. You could also be a mule as well as not necessarily the person doing the counterfeiting, yeah. but, but off doing it. So, uh, you know, according to, to Kathleen, he was involved in these cases, but he was never, you know, uh, implicated in them uh, specifically. Um, but if we go uh, to the next slide, then this is where the church finances in Kirtland become kind of interesting because um, they they formed the, the bank, the Kirtland. Kirtland Safety Society. And this came about in 1832 when Smith went to Kirtland. His power was being challenged by revelations from Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page. Hiram Page had his own seer stone and was getting his own revelations and stuff. Yeah. And so Smith came up with this solution that uh, let's build a temple and we'll have special endowments and revelations that they can only get from me. And this will solidify my power. We'll bring in, everyone will start building the, the, uh, uh, temple, and we'll we'll bring all the people here. This had a well, and that. Sorry to interrupt you, yep. but um, that was one of the uh, that was one of the ideas that Joseph Smith told everyone who went with him on the Zion's Camp march to go retake Missouri when they got the you know, and that was given by revelation. Gather five hundred people, and then they only had like hundred and sixty, and they made the eight hundred mile march. And then when they got there, Joseph Smith, all blustering, all that, he looked at the militia mob and he goes, "Oh, dang, I must have miscalculated." Well, come to think of it, let's have a revelation. And the Lord said, "No, don't worry about it. You don't have power yet. I will go back home." And that's when Joseph Smith had the revelation that it blamed everyone in the camp except 
M. Yep. Uh, John DeLynn with Mike on LDS discussion has an absolutely awesome uh, talk on that. But so this idea of power, Joseph Smith is still doing that here in Kirtland too. So, but that started way back in 1832 with the Zion's camp thing. So it's amazing how all this stuff just ties together. And, and, and I also had a, a good friend of mine here call me actually just earlier this afternoon, excited to watch the show. I think he's here, Nathan Peterson. If if you're here, I'll do a shout out to you, brother. Uh, he mentioned that he went to the church's website and they have a picture of this bill, but they have taken off the word anti. Yeah. Rebecca, you've got some of that there, right? Who doesn't just have Nauvoo bogus laying around in their living room? Everyone, right? Of course. Of pass course. it over. So pass, pass it, it over, around. Rebecca. Pass it around. That's right. I give it out at Halloween for this is the trick-or-treaters. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that it is, I got this from the Nauvoo Mercantile. I actually ordered it oh, a while yeah. ago when we did a book club presentation on counterfeiting. And it is really interesting. And I gave some to Landon. I think you have some there too. Yeah, don't I've you? got a couple so, of them too. And, yeah, and mine doesn't have the anti-banking. And yeah. we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, because it's just kind of oh, handwritten oh, I'm, in I'm after they printed it. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Yep. How cool. So so basically they started building this temple. And remember this, these, these two guys that got added to the United firm that owned all the land? Well, they yeah. donated the land for the temple. And oh, then the land around it, the United firm set up so people could build their houses next to the temple. And they started selling the lots. Of course, they were under the law of consecration. So all these poor immigrants coming in were supposed to be able to get houses for, you know, basically given to them as part of the law of consecration, but instead they were sold at highly marked up rates. Um, and so the, the immigrants had to go get jobs to pay for their land around the temple. And of course, the only people who had money were the non-Mormons. So they went to the non-Mormons and they'd work for them and get paid, paid by them. Uh, so the church ended up being very land wealthy. They had a lot of land, but they had no liquid cash. They couldn't get to any cash because it was all tied up in the land and the immigrants had to get the job and pay them the cash. So they had no way to get the cash. So they said, let's, let's start our own bank. Um, and so they, um, Oh, that's where they went illegal then. Right. Well, they're, they're not quite, they, they, their intent was to be legal initially. So, uh, they, they, uh, they decided to send off, um, and get their own, make their own plates. They were going to start their own bank. And so they sent off, uh, I'm trying to think who it was. They sent off to get uh, uh, the, they sent one of the, one of the apostles, uh, Pratt or one of those to go get, to go get the uh, uh, plates made. And they sent another one off to the Ohio legislature to get uh, a charter because in order to start a bank, you had to have a charter. And that's what made you a legal bank. Well, the one guy goes off to get the plates and he's already got the design, what the plates are going to look like. And it's calling itself a bank at the time. So uh, they got the plates made and he comes back and he's successful. He gets the plates. He has the plates, not the gold plates, but just as good because they yeah. could make. <laughs> make well, you got to distinguish these, these that plates, here. <laughs> these plates here are real. The angel didn't take them back. <laughs> they may have thought an angel brought them when you bring these plates that are worth money to them. Um, but. Uh, they made the plate so that they could start printing their own uh, their their own uh, money, uh, but 
the the requested change Orson, Orson Hyde went for the charter. That's Orson correct. Hyde. Yes, That's it was right. Orson Hyde. So Orson Hyde goes Orson to Hyde. the legislature to get the charter, and the legislature says, "No, we're not giving you a charter. There's too many wildcatters, and there's too much counterfeiting going on." That at this time they cracked down very tight. It was very hard to get a bank charter um, oh, because God. of all the wildcatting and and chartering that was going on. Wildcatting is where you didn't have enough money in the bank to to back the bank. Um, and so you were putting out money that really wasn't backed. And so the church, a lot of times you'll hear them say, oh, we were we were uh, discriminated against. They didn't like the Mormons. And that's why we didn't get the plates. The truth of the matter is, I think like 37 charters were filed that year in Ohio to start banks and only one was accepted. Um, oh. So it was, it was very rare. You had to you had to show that you had the capacity to to run a bank, basically. And they didn't. And they, they did not the land, but not the cash. Yeah. So they come back, they've got the plates, but they don't have a charter. And so what does the church do? Well, they do what they've always done. We'll just ignore the law. We don't see it. We don't, <laughs> we don't care. We've got God on our side. We'll ignore the law. Wow, what's a lot of us. So we'll right. if God it. wants a bank, God's going to get a bank. God's That's how bank. it works. <laughs> it's Nephi and Laban all over again. Just going to get what you want. So they start an anti-banking bank. They call it the anti-banking bank. Um, and it's illegal right from the start. It doesn't have a charter. Uh, they sold stock, but they never incorporated. So, you know, they're not they're not really a company. They printed banknotes in illegal denominations. Uh, at the time, because of uh, because of inflation, I guess the the bank uh, the you couldn't you had to print them in certain denominations. They didn't want too small of denominations on it. Uh, I guess it flooded the market, made it too. Uh, so they said you had to, I can't remember if it was tens or hundreds, but you had to be at a certain level. And so the, the threes and the twos uh, were not, were not authorized at the time. So they're printing them in illegal denominations. Um, they were only cap, they, they were capitalized at $4 million for this bank but they had a reserve of only 20,000. So they only had the gold backing of $20,000, yet they sold $4 million worth of capitalization out there. Oh. To, to put this in perspective, most banks at that time uh, were capitalized at around $100,000. And they were capitalized at $4 million. Oh. Their stories and, and, uh, and, and again, these are stories and I don't know what, but that, that Joseph Smith would bring out like boxes. Uh, they'd put them in the safe so that the customers could see them and they'd put gold coin across the top, but it was all sand underneath it. Uh, so it looked like they had cases of gold in the, in, in the, uh, in the safes. And, and there's actually, we'll, we'll get to something where they're accusing each other of doing that kind of stuff. So whether it actually happened or not, you know, everyone's got their opinion of whether that happened or not. But the, the, the bottom line is they were accusing each other of doing that, uh, which becomes problematic. That's a, uh, that's, so, a that's a form of counterfeiting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're trying to make everyone believe it's worth more than it did. Uh, yeah. So the bank only lasted one month before it, before it announced that uh, that they would no longer give specie for the bank notes. So if you brought in a bank note, you're not getting gold or silver for it now. And so what that does is it, it just makes your it makes your banknote worth practically nothing. Um, and so people come running to the bank and there's a run on the bank, basically. 
Uh, and the church likes to say that their enemies uh, conspired to bring down the bank. And if you want to call, you know, somebody that you gave a note worth something to who's coming and, and trying to cash it in before it is worth nothing, your enemy, I guess you can call them that. But so there's a, there's a twisting of the story to make it more self-promoting. Yes, absolutely. It was the, the enemies that traded. Yeah, yeah. Not it's bad always, banking principles. Always the anti-Mormon fault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. So, um, so as you can see uh, on this three dollar bill, you you can maybe see the little anti right in front of the banking. Oh, right I thought you bank. was going to say you can see Joseph Smith's portrait. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he didn't quite do that. I think his signature's on there. You can see his signature yeah. on there. Close enough. These are signed. Yeah, which they tried to they tried to say he was just a clerk in the bank. He had nothing to do with the <laughs> finances of it. Yet he's the one signing the money. You can't be a clerk when you're wearing a general's costume. No, There's no way. you just can't. <laughs> That's crazy beans, man. But in order to get by, they started stamping on there the the anti on it. And and uh, as as you said, the one uh, listener pointed out, the one in there in the finance article does not have the anti stamped yeah. on it. It because it's one that they hadn't stamped the anti on the picture they have. But they stamped it on there to make it, oh, we're not a bank. They had to make it clear, we're not a bank, we're an anti-bank. We're not like a bank. anyone even knew what that was. <laughs> that doesn't change a thing, you know. It's basically not the reserves on tithing, but uh, it wasn't the tithing, but the reserves on tithing. We're not a yeah. bank, we're an anti-bank. Yeah. yeah. We're going to operate like one, but you don't know what the difference is. You can always follow the brethren to the bank. So the bank, even though the bank would no longer collect the money, they continued to issue the money. They they kept issuing it. And what you do is you just go further out with the money to where people live further out that didn't know the bank was collapsing yet. And they'd say, oh, I'll take this bill. And you'd sell them. They'd sell you horses. You'd go sell the horses and get some from a bank and get notes that were real. And then you had real money and their money was basically useless that they took the promissory note on. And there's there's. Again, this is where there's claims that 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 the brethren actually sent out people, you know, apostles and other people to go go do the money and get as much as they could out of it before it became completely useless to them. And, and to try to, why they have enemies that are persecuting them? This is exactly why they have oh enemies that are persecuting. No wonder I never learned this in Sunday school. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, I never heard this. Until, and this shows you how lousy I am with church history until I saw your guys' podcast. <laughs> because I was emphasizing, you know, my intellect into the Book of Abraham stuff and the papyri. So I, I wasn't real good with church history. So this is one of the reasons why I said, man, I want these guys to share this information. Because you can see how the church literally takes the history and twists it yep. to turn it into a faith-promoting, oh, we were, per we were persecuted. Why? I was told to teach on my mission. They were persecuted because Revelation was teaching Joseph Smith the truth. God and Jesus had bodies. Salvation was through the Mormon church, etc. That has nothing to do with what was happening. Nothing well, They were defrauding a tri-state area. So people are bound to be a little cranky about that. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're doing this and they're taking over, they're, they're voting as a big block and they're taking over government and-, and, and Yeah, and then Joseph Smith the made it impossible to extradite him out of Nauvoo with the habeas corpus that he always 
threw out habeas corpus to everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's no wonder people did not like them. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah, and it, it it gets it it gets worse even. Um, so if we go to the next slide, well, here, here's what Dan Vogel says real quick, and then we'll go. They made contracts with agents to sell bills that didn't have anti on, or on the contract to sell them. Oh, so they were selling them without the anti. Uh, yeah, and then that way it's banknotes, and that's how they were getting wow, away. With. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Should they have men like Dan on? <laughs> oh, I know that when Dan it makes you nervous them. and then glad at the same time, right? <laughs> well, yeah, Dan, no, Dan's a good. He's, oh yeah, he, he's not. He's he's the real gold. Oh, absolutely, yeah. He's Don't the gold standard. I said that, though, the <laughs> I've got to have him on some shows in the future. I don't want him to be arrogant. Okay, next slide. Thank you, Dan. That's good information. Appreciate so, that. so Smith and Rigdon have to get out of town when the bank collapses. It did run for a couple more months. I think it ran like 11 months total. And then 1837, there was that financial crash. Everything came down on top of not only was their stuff fraudulent, but a bunch of other banks crashed. And, and uh, But people went after them. Nothing like uh, losing all your money to make you lose your faith. Um, and so it said he didn't have two friends in Kirtland by the time the Kirtland Safety Society failure was over. Uh, so he had to get out of town, but they did they did uh, arrest them and charge them and they were convicted and fined a thousand dollars each um, for their part in the in the bank finance thing. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. They, they we we actually do know that that conviction held and they were fined. They were fined. Yeah, that's what I found is they were convicted and had to pay. Yeah, I was told fine. Joseph Smith was taken to charged uh, several several dozen times and nothing ever. He was never found guilty on any of the charges. He was one hundred percent innocent. That was the narrative I was raised on. Yeah, and in Kathy's book it says that they were convicted and fined a thousand dollars each. So. Um, wow. Yeah, of course, we were also told that they weren't ever fined for that. He was never, you know, found guilty in the Peepstone uh, trial either and, and stuff. So 1826. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know that this is, you know, a lot of these aren't they may not be they're They're more civil penalties than they are uh, criminal oh. penalties um, because they let him go after they paid the thousand dollar fine, which is amazing that the bank was bankrupt, but they still had the thousand dollars to pay the fine. Yeah, um, right. How'd they get that? I, yeah. I think they asked for members to help out. <laughs> oh, they did the same thing with the papyri. It. Hey, I want this papyri, but I can't buy it. So you guys buy it. So <laughs> sort of the bail out the profit. Is that what it was? Like the primary song, right? Not follow, but bail out. Bail out the profit. Yeah. Bail out the profit. Bail out the profit. Bail out the profit. He's in jail. <laughs> so Oliver Cowdery got away. He he got to Missouri. Um, but this is where we start seeing a lot of the counterfeiting come up because Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated. And he was excommunicated on seven charges. Uh, one of them was being a lawyer. One of them was uh, claiming Joseph Smith committed adultery with Fanny Alger. <laughs> Um, but another one was for counterfeiting was one of the charges. And we were going really counterfeiting. Why are they, why are they charging this guy with counterfeiting? Not the church. So, uh, the Danite, uh, this is the time the Dan, they formed the Danite secret society and, uh, uh they're sacred, they're, not secret, a sacred organization called the Danites and the Danites, um, <laughs> created a Danite manifesto. 
And in there, uh, this is this is from the first presidency. They wrote specific descriptions of the counterfeiting that they claimed Oliver Cowdery and some of the other brethren were engaged in. And they wrote this in this Danite manifesto. So this isn't the mob. This isn't the government making these claims. This is Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon making this this claim. And they said uh, and they intended to publish this to the world. Um, and so they they accused Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer. We got two of the two of the witnesses Whoa. there, and Lyman E. Johnson. And they said they united with a gang of counterfeiters, thieves, liars, and blacklegs um, of the deepest dye to deceive, cheat, and defraud the saints out of their property by every art and stratagem which wickedness could invent. You kept up a continual correspondence with your gang of marauders in Kirtland, encouraging them to go on with their iniquity. Stealing, cheating, lying, instituting vexatious lawsuits, selling bogus money. Bogus money is counterfeit. Bogus um, money. And also stones and sand for bogus. This is the claim that they had the sand with the, you know, and that they'd cover it up and make it look like it was counterfeit money or that it was real money. Um, in which nefarious business Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer and Lyman E. Johnson were engaged while you were there. You are at this time engaged. You are at this time engaged with a gang of counterfeiters, coiners, and blacklegs, as some of those characters have lately visited our city from Kirtland and told what they had come for. So, you've got Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith saying Oliver and David Whitmer and Lyman Johnson, you guys are involved in counterfeiting. We know it. These guys told us. We know that you're involved with this. You stole from the saints. Wow. And they're charging them and excommunicating them for, for counterfeiting. Hey, is this in the Joseph Smith papers? It'd have to be, wouldn't it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's in there. It's in the Danite Manifesto. Church Finance 1837. I may have to go look at the, I'll bet it is. It's got to be if it was written by Joseph Smith. Yeah, and if, wow. you look up, if you look up Oliver Cowdery's excommunication, you can see some, you know, the reasons that they yeah. claim that he well, was. I, I, knew, I knew it was involving Fanny Alger, but I didn't know it was counterfeit. I mean, I didn't know that they were accusing <laughs> so, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and all the God. holy cow. Don't join Joseph Smith, he'll turn on you instantly, man. Well, that's kind oh, of what yeah. we found. We started looking at charges throughout the entire time. Counterfeiting was always one of the charges, it was always the common ones that we know of, but then tagged on counterfeiting every time it was so curious that's I've kind of what made us interested in looking at more yeah i'm in my 60s man yeah. i've never heard of this yeah it, it it's an amazing story and the bottom line is you can say all this all the evidence was circumstantial were they counterfeiting were they not counterfeiting right. Doesn't matter. They're accusing each other because, yeah. you know, Oliver oh, Cowdery's good. going back saying, no, you guys were counterfeiting. We weren't counterfeiting. Good you guys point. were counterfeiting. Good point. You're and a counterfeiter and you're a counterfeiter. Yeah, you're a counterfeiter. You're a counterfeiter. It's like Oprah, right? And, and you're and a counterfeiter. So, so one way or the other, even if none of them were counterfeiting, they're all charging each other as, as, as counterfeiting. And so you're going... These are supposed to be the guys I'm supposed to believe on the three witnesses. And yet Joseph Smith himself is saying they're liars, counters, thieves, and bootleggers, you know, but yeah. I'm supposed to believe them on their testimony of the, of the, uh, uh, of the yeah. three witnesses. Yeah. On their experience. <laughs> so, um, and I'm going to skip some of these hey, other hey, things. Wasn't, 
just real quick and we can wasn't david whitmer uh wasn't he one of them that said joseph was a fallen prophet i think he was wasn't he uh, I, dan bogle do you remember which one of those they were i know it was uh william mcclellan was one of them for sure but there were a group of them who were saying well joseph smith is a a fallen prophet I can't keep track because they'd say it and then they'd retract it and then they'd say it. I know, right? <laughs> they'd well, get accusing them. Yeah. <laughs> if he accuses them, then they're going to write back at you. You're a fallen prophet. So it was sort of a back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So we're, we're going to visit the counterfeiting is not over yet. We're going to revisit it when we get to the, to the Nauvoo period, uh, because really? it no comes clue. up again. Oliver gets excommunicated. David Whitmer leaves. They, they, they get kicked out of Missouri and they go back to Nauvoo and it all shows up again. Uh, it, it doesn't go away. It follows them. So it's the plague, man. It, it is. It's, it's the plague of early Mormonism that none of us really know anything about. So let's go to the next essay then, the next, the next uh, part of the essay. Um, you bet. You want me to read it? Yeah, if you could read that. Sure. Beginning in 1841, Joseph Smith transacted business on behalf of the church as trustee in trust or the person legally responsible for the church's assets. This was a common organizing model for many churches and other institutions at the time in bold for those who are going to hear this as a podcast. After Joseph Smith's death, church members sustained the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to dictate about the finances of the church until the first presidency could be reorganized. During the remainder of the 19th century, the trustee and trust acted in concert with church councils to acquire property and transact other business on behalf of the church, invest in building Latter-day Saint communities, and fund the gathering of saints to the North American West. For example, the church helped facilitate Latter-day Saint migration to the North American West by extending loans through the church's perpetual emigrating fund that's in bold, in 1877, in an effort to ensure careful and consistent accounting, President John Taylor organized an auditing committee that renewed all transactions conducted under the trustee in trust. Okay, so several things here, and I probably missed a couple highlights here. Um, the the uh, we, we we have quite a you know about a forty year uh, jump right here uh, between eighteen forty one to seventy seven I guess thirty something years uh, jump yeah. uh, but again we we find one of these sleight of hand words this was a common organizing model for many churches and other institutions at the time okay I I can believe that the trust and trustee was maybe used by some small churches um, I believe that. Um, Trust and trustee would be used by a business to set up a business. But for one man to own all of the property of a church, of a town, to be its mayor, to be its church ecclesiastical leader, to own the property, the printing press, the I can't name any other place where one trust and trustee owns every single part of a community in any other church uh, that, that I can think of. So uh, the, the model of a trust of trustees, uh, a trustee and trust. Yes, I'm sure that was used. It was never used to this level 
that Joseph Smith used it as in, in Nauvoo. Uh, it, he, he controlled everything. He owned everything. He gave, we know he was given properties to the wives, all of his different wives he would just give property to because he was holding all of that as trust he entrusted and he was giving it to everybody like it was his, not the church's. And well, he, he was secretly uh, made a king. In he was the king. And, and the crazy thing is, however, though, according to this Joseph Smith papers on the organizations, um, the records, not only Joseph Smith, but it was like Brigham Young and uh, John Taylor. And John Taylor actually, after they had gotten into Salt Lake and after Brigham Young was dead, John Taylor pursued that, hey, I'm a king thing somewhat, but he had to go into hiding. So, yeah, yeah we're, we're talking total dictator here. I'm, oh, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful or or uh, make this into a mudslinging contest. That's dictatorial power. That's total. That's Putin. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's why I highlighted some of these. After Joseph Smith's death, look who they give it to. The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, to dictate about the finances of the church. I like the word dictate because that's pretty much what it was. Dictate, um, wow, yeah, okay. But we're going to see how wise of an option that was to give it to the, uh, you know, to give it those finances to them as well. Uh, a couple other things that were highlighted in here, extending loans through the church perpetual immigrating fund. Anyone who, who who's read the history, that was very useful fund for those who were emigrating from Europe and coming over where they could borrow it and then they had to pay it back. The problem is if you got over here and you decide to lose the leave the church, you lost everything. It was not it was a it was almost like indentured servitude. Before you could leave Utah, if you decide you were going to leave the church, they would take everything you owned to pay back your loan for the immigration fund, and you were left uh, you were left basically uh, hmm. without a dime. Uh, so so they used it to control you in one essence uh, because they now owned you when you got there. Uh, so well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Though. Yeah, exactly. They yeah. had they found that a way. True. And then again, 1877, we that's one of those. Remember, 1877, John Taylor now starts disclosing uh, the finances again. When Brigham Young dies, he, he starts implementing it. So um but I want to go back to Joseph Smith up until he dies in Nauvoo, and then and then we'll jump to these uh, to the to the other saints. Um, so if you can go to the next slide, Nauvoo counterfeiting. I said we'd get to this once they got to Nauvoo. Um, it turns out, and this this comes from a book. Uh, this is not a LDS guy, David R. Johnson, in his book "Illegal Tender: Counterfeiting and the Secret Service in the 19th Century America." Well, well good. We can trust him now. Yeah, he said that St. Louis and Nauvoo, Illinois, combined to create the second major production center in the nation. And he's talking about for counterfeit money. So Nauvoo, Illinois, was the second production center in the nation for counterfeiting, uh, according to the Secret Service uh, in, during this time. Again, counterfeiting shows up. Uh, Professor Stephen... Uh, Mim included in profile of Nauvoo in his study. He says counterfeiters associated with the Mormon settlement at Nauvoo, Illinois, for example, attracted condemnation from their neighbors in the 1840s. The Mormons who had established an autonomous state within a state at Nauvoo probably tolerated counterfeiters in the midst, in their midst, and may well have had a hand in manufacturing bogus coin themselves. The attraction of high autonomous Nauvoo was understandable 
Moreover, the Mormons have been accused of counterfeiting in the past, as well as other experiments that boarded on counterfeiting, including the Kirtland Bank debacle. And then the last one is from the Warsaw Signal, and it says counterfeits. There is a species of counterfeit extensively circulated in this community called Nauvoo Bogus. They are half dollars dated 1828. They are a pretty good imitation of the genuine coin, so good that some of our businessmen have been imposed upon by them. It is said they are manufactured in the city of the saints. So they had their own counterfeit name, the, the Nauvoo Bogus, uh, that was being Nauvoo put out. Nauvoo Bogus. That would have been a good newspaper name. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> that was rude. True, but rude. <laughs> but, but you look at this. This is in, this is in uh, you know, Nav, this is Nauvoo. Uh, Joseph knew everything that was going on in Nauvoo. Nothing happened in Nauvoo that, the, that Joseph or, or the leaders did not know about. It was not that big of a city. So for this to be going on during that time is a good indication they knew something, and even if they weren't doing it, they were the ones, you know, that were allowing it to happen and, and then letting the people come back into their autonomous state and say, no, we're not. Yeah, I, I want to show you guys this. This is the Joseph Smith Papers, the the uh, administrative records of the Council of 50 Minutes, and this is March 1844 to January 19 or 1846. I, I'm not kidding. The whole thing, there is... Look at those tabs. Oh my God. Our, our copy is like very pristine. It's for decorations purposes only. 40 pages of, of meeting after meeting after meeting. I mean, they did nothing else. They didn't even sleep, eat, nothing. They always had these meetings. So you're right, Joseph, he, he was using all of the brethren. They were his eyes and ears all around. He knew everything. He had a whole army of people that was constantly reporting to him in these councils. So, Oh, yeah. Just, just to let you know, that is in Joseph Smith papers. Uh, Landon is not just making this up. He's not trying to besmirch Joseph Smith by saying this guy knew everything and he wanted total control. We've got the evidence that that is, I mean, I personally can't imagine it, but I'm serious. From 6 a.m. to midnight, these guys were cost, and what they were doing is going from place to place so that they never got caught. Mm -hmm. I mean, this wasn't just sitting down in one place for 14 hours a day. They were constantly on, you know, two or three at a time and go, go over there, and then two or three would leave out and go around. And I, and Dan Vogel's new book is in print right now, and it's going to be on this period. It'll be out, hopefully, before the middle of May. So we're going to have a yet another new analysis coming out. I want to oh, plug his book. So that, that'll be fun when he gets his book done. But anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, but no problem. No. no, that's amazing. So if, if we go to the next slide, we come back to Joseph Smith. Uh, it, we all know what happened with the Nauvoo ex Expositor, that they published their first edition and Joseph Smith ordered it destroyed. Well, he had to, we know it's because he exposed this polygamy. It was William Law, remember, the first counselor in the in the first presidency who leaves and exposes the, yeah, the yeah, polygamy. Yeah, now, now, now we're talking the equivalent of Dallin Oaks. Yes. Let's yes this context. Look, look, that's really for real. <laughs> and, and so he has to explain this burning of the print of the press to the governor when all of this, you know, violence starts happening. And here's what he writes. He says, Smith says dissenters were 
unprincipled, lawless, debauchees, counterfeiters, bogus makers, gamblers, and peace disturbers. He's trying to make it sound like William Law is using his press to print counterfeit money. <laughs> Again, the counterfeiting comes up. So, uh, so what happens is Governor Ford, after the, you know, he's arrested, he's sent, Governor Ford's coming to Nauvoo to find out what's happening. He's going to do an investigation. And what happens? John Taylor hides the stereotype plates and what he claims are the most valuable things were removed from the printing office in Nauvoo. And he disguised himself so as not to be known and crossed the river to escape to Canada when word came that Governor Ford was coming to Nauvoo to investigate. So if you're just printing a newspaper in the church printing office or Books of Mormons, why do you have to hide the stereotype plates? Why do you have to disguise yourself and escape to Canada? Who's, oh, that's interesting. Who's counterfeiting? <laughs> I don't know. You know, we, we don't have any direct evidence, but there's, there's here they are throwing it around. Why again. would they act that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why are you acting that way? Um, and so Governor Ford gets there and he meets uh, the Nauvoo General George Miller um, uh, and he charges him with stolen goods. And he says, stolen property has been traced to your city and the owners who came to search were ordered away and fled for their lives. And there were those in Nauvoo that carry on a pretty large business in, in stealing. Ford said he suspected murders have been ordered by some of the Mormon leaders. He strongly threatened that if the depredation did not cease, the surrounding counties will take up the guard and you may be driven despite uh, the state in the dead of winter. So again, they seem to be almost running a criminal enterprise in Nauvoo of this counterfeiting and these stolen goods because yeah. it was an autonomous state within a state that the other, the other surrounding communities couldn't come into because they had the Nauvoo charter, which was made them autonomous. So it was the perfect place to run this almost criminal activity and counterfeiting was clearly happening in this city from somebody uh, at some quarter. Rebecca, you weren't told any of this when you were being raised, were you? The faith-promoting story for me was truly, seriously. Um, everywhere the saints go, they were persecuted by the mobs. And Joseph Smith was tarred and feathered. And he was just simply trying to build temples to do the Lord's work. And he was taking care of his people. That's what I heard. Yeah, it was all based on religious beliefs and the persecution of the saints and those that believed. Exactly. You never knew. You never it never entered your mind that what what might the saints have been doing that might have pissed some of these people off? Oh, my gosh. But as soon yeah. as you start reading and going to original sources, it becomes very clear that there's something different going on than what you were told. That's absolutely okay. correct. Yeah, all right. I'm just I'm in the mouth of two or three witnesses. We have three professor witnesses, right? Here on this <laughs> Professional <laughs> professors. That's who we are. Well, and like I said, we gathered this information from various sources, and and you right. know we we can always be wrong. Uh, we yeah. we we say that. We we encourage everyone to go out and study this and find these exactly. things and look them up themselves and see what they yeah. think. Uh, you know, this was just information we were finding that we were able to compile together in these different books. But um, in fact, uh, if we go to the next slide, this is one that was really interesting that none of us really um, uh, think about. But we've all seen this picture of the saints leaving Nauvoo in the middle of the winter and crossing over the river. Very had... faith promoting. It was the miracle that uh, the Lord froze the river so that they could cross over. 
they crossed and then they all froze to death on the other side. The children froze and everything because they had to leave before the mobs destroyed them. Well, the reality is they didn't leave because of the mobs. They left because federal troops were coming. Um, federal troops were coming oh. with arrest warrants for Brigham Young, Brigham Young. Yeah. and John Taylor for counterfeiting. <laughs> no way. So uh, they'd actually tried to arrest them a couple times in Nauvoo, but you know they were always able to be disguised or swept out of the city and stuff. And so uh, they knew that they might possibly be arrested prior to uh, the the end of winter. And so they they uh, said we got to get out of the United States before we get arrested for this. And they uh, started the exodus. And again, we go back to people charging each other. William Smith, who is Joseph Smith's younger brother who is right. also the patriarch who you could write whole stories about this guy. He is a, he's a dirt bag all the way around, <laughs> but he's the patriarch of the church. And he said of the, uh, of the Brigham Young and the 12, that they were thieves, murderers, and counterfeiters. Uh, this is Joseph Smith's brother and the patriarch of the church. So th this isn't the mob saying this, this is, this is, you know, these wow. guys. So, the, a grand jury indicted Brigham Young and many of the Quorum of the Twelve on counterfeiting. Um, and by order of abandonment of Nauvoo, prior to the federal troops arriving, Brigham Young ordered the saints to leave Nauvoo in the middle of the winter to, to avoid the grand jury indictment that was coming uh, for counterfeiting. So, wow. Again, wow. Uh, this all information that uh, was in Kathleen's book, uh, you know, with the with the uh, things that uh, were in there. So well, that, that's definitely a new look on that. Holy Toledo. All I ever heard was about a, the glorious miracle of the Lord freezing the river over so that the saints could escape their enemies. Uh, and I guess technically federal marshals coming to bust your butt for counterfeiting would make them your enemy. <laughs> I was going to say, Rebecca always has a story about all the faith promoting stories of, you know, the women hiding Joseph in their beds uh, so that, they, <laughs> you know, how faith promoting those are. <laughs> There's always That's another funny. spin to those, you know, when you really start to look. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're going to catch me in your bed, Batty. I got to go over here to, that's right. Hide the prophet. That's it. That's always an inspiring story. My family had to hide the prophet. I actually did start noticing those stories. I spent decades in primary, and a lot of times the kids would give up and give get up and give talks about family members who, you know, pioneer era had had to hide the prophet. And being in primary every Sunday, I started thinking, this is very interesting. I wonder if other churches have <laughs> historical leaders where they're constantly having to hide them under the bed or in the closet, violent oh, stories. And yeah, 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 a lot. So I don't know. It says something yeah. big picture. Richard Bushman might have been very right when he said the dominant church narrative just isn't true. Mm. You know, I, I know people don't like him for that, but I mean, yeah. wow, this yeah. is not it was realistic, I think. Yeah. So the, the, key, worse, you guys. The, the key thing here is, is the counterfeiting charges didn't end uh, once they got to Utah. If you want to go to the next uh, for, uh, slide. Are you kidding me? Serious? Yeah. But Young wait, there's more. <laughs> he, he but wait. As soon as they got to Utah, making coins bought brought back from the California gold fields. Now, 
the fact that he sent up a mint tells me they probably had uh, some way to make coins, a uh, machine or some way to make coins. Uh, maybe wow. they brought it from Nauvoo. I don't know where they got it. But uh, but citizens received a rude shock when uh, assay tests showed that Mormon coins were debased by as much as 20%. So they were gold coins, but they lacked 20% of the gold that was required to make them worth the amount that they were uh, saying that they were worth. Uh, so they were under uh, another way of counterfeiting. You're not, you're giving them 80 cents for a dollar is basically what you're doing uh, okay. by, by doing that. Uh, also, uh, in order when the Utah war broke out, Brigham Young planned to put half a million dollars in forged checks in circulation. It was discovered and officials at Camp Floyd attempted to arrest him. However, complete political control of the legal system by Brigham Young made this impossible. Former Mormon Myron Brewer, who turned state's evidence during a preliminary hearing, was shot dead in the middle of the night. Uh, so, you know, there's... Cody Rockwell, maybe? Could, could yeah. be. Bill, Bill Hickman? Yeah. They're, 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 they, he had plenty of uh, people who would take care of that. And and this one's from Will Bagley. Uh, anyone who's read Will Bagley and knows his work, he says, yeah. the persistence of such charges of counterfeiting in Illinois, Iowa, New York, California, and ultimately in Utah Territory suggests that counterfeiting like polygamy was a publicly condemned but secretly sanctioned activity in early Mormon society. Yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, wow. Wow, what an eye-opener. I, 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 that, I, yeah. So the last, the last part of that sentence that we had was, you know, about the, uh, they turned it over to the 12 apostles and the first presidency. So the next slide, uh, we, we decided that we'd do a little bit of a, you know, FBI's most wanted and say, who are these people who are running the church finances uh, during this time? Oh, my um, gosh. Look and, at this. And, and what what were they charged with? And I want to point out these weren't necessarily legal charges. Some of them were some of them were legal charges that they faced. But these were all these were also charges that they were making against each other. So uh -huh. it, it's really hard to make a differentiation when, you know, Joseph Smith is the mayor of Nauvoo and he's saying that you're counterfeiting. Uh, is that a civil charge? Is that a, you know, uh, what, what kind of charge is that? But the reason I put it, whether it was a legal charge or a or a charge against made by some other uh, ecclesiastical leader was to point out the problem that no matter what happens, whether it's a legal claim or a claim by an ecclesiastical leader, something's wrong here because everyone's accusing everyone else of counterfeiting of all of these different charges. Now, some of these are going to be bigamy, which we all know they were practicing, although they weren't claiming it. So some of these guys were being charged with this or they were being pursued for bigamy under the Edmund Tucker Act, John Taylor, and that kind of stuff. So these were legal things. But most of the counterfeiting ones were were legal. They were, you know, grand jury found something or uh, something like that. So Joseph Smith. Charlie E. Pratt, Orson Hyde. Oh, my, my favorite's William Smith there, where he was ruining virtuous females by the wholesale. Ruining virtuous females by the wholesale. Oh, my God. <laughs> That was, that was Joseph Smith's brother <laughs> and patriarch of the church. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> but when you look at this, these guys were all, these guys were all charging each other with counterfeiting. The, the, the grand juries were finding they were counterfeiting. 
Porter Rockwell, heck, we, you know, we can't prove the murders, but, you know, they say he committed 100 plus murders and, and right. attempted murder of Boggs he was accused of. He wasn't, uh, you know, charged with that. Uh, he His family went back to the Wood Scrape group. Uh, his family was part of the Wood Scrape group. Uh, so this counterfeiting culture was in many of the families, that counterfeiting culture went all the way back to the Wood Scrape group and they keep showing up in all of these places. So uh, again, you look at these uh, different charges against these different people and and you just go, wow, these are the people who are in charge of the church's finances. I'm just shocked at this time. Wow. Do you need to read the charges, Landon, for those that are just listeners? Sure, I wonder yeah, if you should quickly do that because it's so comprehensive. Yeah, so the first one we have Joseph Smith, and he was charged with treason, bigamy, fraud, treasure digging, inciting a riot, damaging property, attempted murder, extortion, and illegal banking. These are either charges or... Uh, accusations against him. Brigham Young, uh, counterfeiting, uh, murder, and bigamy. Um, so, they, you know, they tried to get Brigham Young on the Mount Meadow Massacre, uh, but he right. completely controlled the Utah, everything in Utah, and there was no way they were ever going to convict him uh, of that. Um, John Taylor, counterfeiting. We just saw he ran away with the dyes and stuff. So he was involved with several of the counterfeiting charges. He, he had the same uh, grand jury that Brigham Young had uh, for counterfeiting uh, and had federal uh, agents coming after him. Uh, he was also bigamy. Uh, he was charged with that and they tried to arrest John Taylor for that. Uh, Parley P. Pratt was involved in the counterfeiting. He was also charged with treason. Uh, murder. We know he, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was he, he killed. Uh, I, I think it was in England before he ever came over. I think he was charged in England with, with murder or there's some really? story of a murder he committed in England before he came over to the United States. Um, and, and he also was involved with bigamy. Uh, Orson Hyde was counterfeiting. He's the one that went and got the plates uh, and also receiving stolen goods. Porter Rockwell, murder times 100-ish, uh, attempted murder of Governor Boggs, uh, which was never pinned on him, uh, counterfeiting, he was involved with that, William Smith, the prophet's brother, counterfeiting, known for drinking, fighting, horse and cattle stealing, and ruining virtuous females by the wholesale. Uh, these were the charges that were put against him by the, uh, by the Quorum of the Twelve. <laughs> Somehow that's the guy they put in charge as the patriarch. <laughs> I love that description. That is too good. Wooning women, virtuous females by the holes. <laughs> Seems to be a family, uh, a family business. I think. Oh, for uh, hell's yeah. sake! That is so disgusting. Uh, Heber C. Kimball was involved in the counterfeiting and also bigamy. Oliver Cowdery was accused of counterfeiting, stealing, cheating, lying, uh, insinuating vexatious and nefarious business. That was by. Uh, Joseph Smith that made that claim against him, uh, you know, so, and then Sidney Rigdon actually seemed to be the cleanest of all of them. Uh, he was only really caught up in the illegal banking uh, his, that he had to pay that fine for, uh, for the uh, Kirtland safety. It would be interesting to draw lines from whom is accusing whom, you know, because they're all pointing the fingers yeah. at each other. It would be interesting. And it, to and see it shifted. That. Yeah. It shifted, and it shifted back there. and forth. That's what I mean. It's very twisted. As the church is. Wow. And we'll come back to one like this. That's kind of fun here at the end um, to, to see how that's changed or if that's changed over time. So 
Uh, we're we're only what halfway done. Uh, I know yeah. we're kind of over your normal. Uh, no, time. no, we're doing good. You part go two. To the next slide? <laughs> yeah, part two. Part we two. Uh, so we're, we're doing okay. good. Okay, this Rebecca, that one's a little small, but can you read that? You have the, I the I have it printed out. Okay. So I already know that I'm old and have bad vision. So I print things out in really large fonts. So that's what I do. <laughs> Don't make fun of me. Okay. Um, no Anti-polygamy laws enacted by the United States government in the 1880s targeted church finances, eventually disenfranchising the church and confiscating its funds and properties. Fluctuating markets and poor investments further depleted the church's remaining resources, presenting church presidents Wilfred Woodruff and Lorenzo Snow with significant debts. After the 1890 manifesto, President Woodruff worked with lawmakers and court officials to recover church property and transition many church-affiliated enterprises into private businesses, a process his successors continued. In 1899, President Snow called on Latter-day Saints to increase their commitment to tithing contributions, which in time helped return the church to financial solvency. Early in the 20th century, Church President Heber J. Grant and presiding Bishop Charles Nibley, who worked previously as businessmen, incorporated church operations formerly administrated solely by the trustee under three entities. In 1916, the corporation of the presiding bishop was created to manage donations and expenditures for works of charity and for public worship, including local meeting houses. In 1923, President Grant established the Corporation of the President, which oversaw all other church assets used for religious purposes. He also founded the Zion Securities Corporation to manage remaining taxable and non-ecclesiastical non entities and properties. During this period, Bishop Nibley worked to bring church financial records in line with modern accounting standards. As the church's financial situation improved, church leaders began to supply up to 50% of the costs of building local meeting houses, leaving the remainder to local budgets. Financial policies implemented by President Grant remained largely intact until the 1960s. Okay, so the, the highlighted section there, after the 1890 manifesto, President Woodruff worked with lawmakers and court officials to recover church property and transition many church-affiliated enterprises into private business, a process is a success or continued. We all remember that during the polygamy times, the church was getting raided. All their property was getting turned over. They were losing it. They had to come out with something, and they came out with this 1890 manifesto saying, we will no longer practice polygamy if you'll give us all our property back, is basically the deal yeah. that was made. Right. We all know they didn't stop practicing polygamy in 1890. Right. They sent a manifesto out. <laughs> and this is this is clearly talked about in this fabulous book here that you, you that you guys and myself are going to go through the the essays. There is an essay on polygamy post 1890 where the church came clean in this essay in 2014 or 15 and in the process they hid more than they revealed so yeah. it's still the same old same old we'll talk about that in detail too so yeah just just keeping the audience informed there's a whole <laughs> lot more good history with these two fabulous people so and, and the, the point i wanted to make on this is that we heard this very similar thing. They worked with lawmakers and court officials to recover the property. Like 
oh, we cooperated fully with officials to make sure everything. We, we heard the same thing with the SEC. They said, oh, yeah. as soon as we became aware of yeah. the shell companies, we worked closely with the SEC yeah. to resolve the issue. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you'd been caught. That's why you. <laughs> yeah, right. You lied and you got caught. That's how it works. It, it I like the phrase. I like the phrase "modern accounting practices." Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we know what those look like now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure oh, but yeah, they 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 lied. They 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 continued to ignore the law. This is a thing we just kept seeing. Every time it came to finances, they would lie to the government. Whatever they had to do to keep their finances. And it got them in trouble time after time after time. They would lie to the and government. Profit after profit after profit. After profit. After profit it profit never after ended. Profit after profit. Yep. You're not exaggerating when you say that. No, no. This is one of the items that just blew my mind. I, I'm just going, wow, does this ever end? No, it really doesn't. It's just and, and and was was converting all of this church property to private businesses a, a process that is successor continued what was the purpose of that it would seem to me that that would be to get it out of the church's name because they hadn't stopped polygamy so that they couldn't seize the property again well, because it no longer belonged to the church there you go yeah 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 so they're working with the government to move the pro to get their property back and move it into a private hand so that they couldn't take it again Meanwhile, they're not stopping polygamy. And it was what was the 1903 or whatever it was before the second manifesto came out. I can't remember the year it was. Yeah. And then a third one had to be put out in yeah. 1918, I believe. Yeah. So you're so talking 25 years later. Probably one of the most delightful things I found while I was researching this <laughs> was this. Uh, it says in the 20th century, church president Heber J. Grant and presiding Bishop Charles Nibley, who previously worked as businessmen, were brought in as the uh, they were brought in to basically save the church, to get the church back on its back into financial prosperity. So I did a little bit of research on Heber J. Grant and Charles Nibley. And they show up in a surprising way I'd never heard of before. It really surprised me as I came to that. Um, so uh, uh, if we go to the next slide, uh, again, uh, we talked about polygamy. The church promised to end polygamy, but it continued until 1904. 1904, including the first presidency, was still marrying people uh, during this time, just doing it secretly. Um, and up to this time, Wilford Woodruff uh, was the... Uh, uh, was the president uh, of that, and so uh, we're going to go to the we're we're going to go to the next one, and and I just want you to remember those names: uh, Heber J. Grant, Charles Nibley, because those are going to become important again. We're going to go back to those. Um, so let's see, is it? Uh, it's Carrie's turn. Carrie's turn yeah. to read. Yeah, okay. I'd be happy to. Uh, between 1915 and 1959. Annual reports of the church's income and expenditures were announced in general conference. These reports showed that most funds were directed toward estate buildings, headquarters, office buildings, church schools, missions, and welfare. 
After 1959, auditors presented in general conference only the results of an annual general audit, assuring the public that leaders had followed financially responsible procedures and dealt honestly in their use of church funds. Deficit spending on the church's ambitious international program of constructing ward and stake buildings during the 1880s drained the church's accounts. M. Eldon Tanner, formerly a business professional, was called to the first presidency in 1963 and introduced strict budgetary controls on church operations. He outlined a financial plan that encouraged building a surplus, maintaining a strict budget, and spending from reserves. Within a short period, the church was able to meet its operational budget and pay its debts. Gosh, where was the prophet in all of this? Wasn't he the one supposed to be? Isn't Jesus running his show? <laughs> Any, sorry, that's not in this. Okay. This improved, Tanner was better than Jesus. He, he oh, got, got him out. <laughs> and it was profit, Jesus not profit. There's a difference. Yeah. No kid, right? Depends how you spell it. Depends okay, how you spell so, it. <laughs> we're having way too much fun. <laughs> This improved financial condition allowed the church to more effectively support many aspects of its mission. For example, uh, since the early 1800s, local wards and stakes had operated their budgets through a mixture of local donations and tithing funds. In uh, 1990, the Council of the Disposition of the Tithes announced that all operating expenses of local units would be paid from general tithing funds. The following year, a consolidated missionary fund allowed the monthly expenses of full-time missionary service to be equalized across missions. Yeah, and I'm going to go the last paragraph first because I think that last paragraph, I, I really think that was something good that the church did. Um, I don't know how many of you remember uh, when that happened, but before that, you know, if you got called to Japan on a mission, you 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 had to pay like a thousand dollars, whereas the kid that went to Guatemala paid a hundred dollars to go. And yeah. so it, all the rich kids went to the rich countries. The poor kids all went to the poor countries. Uh, there was no equalization. And some families would get two kids called to Japan and they had to come up with two thousand dollars on top of their tithing uh, to make that. So when they equalized that and started paying the ward, the chapels, the wards didn't have to pay. A budget. I thought that was really a good thing. That is one of the good things in the in finance essay that I agree was a good thing that I think was fair and that that actually uh, came out of this that was good. Um, I do want to go back up to that top paragraph though. You know the areas we highlighted. We said between 1915 and 1959, those were the two. That was where they started reporting again, as we at the beginning of the show, 1915. 1959 is when they stopped reporting. How interesting. Two things happened there. 1915, Joseph F. Smith was the president of the church, and his name started getting drugged through the mud due to financial problems with the church and the church interloping its money with private businesses. And so in order to try to avoid that, they started reporting again on the finances of the church. So there was a reason that they finally started to report again. And then we see in 1959, the church got itself in a lot of debt. They started building too many buildings, too many projects around the world. They got into a lot of debt and they had to bring in N. Eldon Tanner to clean it up 
And at the time, they didn't want everyone to know how big a debt they were in. So they stopped reporting in, in Sacramento and they went to this general uh, statement that we heard today. And, and they've been yeah, doing that. So that really time. locks in perfectly what you were finding. That's good historical detective work, you guys. That's awesome. I love it. So the fun thing is 1915. What happened in 1915? You actually uh, have to go back. World War One. Uh, it was it was before World War One, but it was coming. It was coming. Um, this goes back to uh, something I had no idea about. It's called the Utah Idaho Sugar Company antitrust investigation. Basically, Utah started trying to produce sugar right from. Very early on, uh, Brigham Young asked John Taylor uh, to try to figure out how to produce sugar um, when he was on a mission in France. And John Taylor, I, I didn't know that you could do this as a missionary. He ended up buying a bunch of stuff, shipped it back uh, and started a company while he was on his mission, shipped all this sugar producing stuff back to the States. He didn't have enough money to get it there. So the church had to pay the money to get it the rest of the way there. And they brought it into Salt Lake and that's Sugar House and all that started where they tried to produce sugar. And they tried several different methods to produce sugar because they're an inland in, inland area. Yeah. Uh, sugar is coming in from, you know, Cuba and that kind of places where it's produced at. But they said, well, if we could produce it here locally, that would that would make it a lot cheaper. And so they tried, there was, sugar beets was a thing that they said, oh, we can extract sugar from, but no one had figured out how to do it yet. And this guy in France had started figuring out how to do it. And so they bought all that equipment and brought it over, but they couldn't get it all here. And then some of the pieces they left behind were important pieces for making it. And they never could get it to work. And Brigham Young always derided John Taylor. Uh, he told him he was a stupid businessman and that he, you know, he didn't have, the, the right stuff to do this. And so John Taylor finally gave up and Brigham Young took over the operation and Brigham Young couldn't make it work either. Um, but eventually in California, someone figured out how to, how to make sugar beets and get sugar out of sugar beets. And Utah really had a perfect climate for growing sugar beets. So Wilford Woodruff, and I don't know where this is because they never did put it in the, uh, they never did put it in the, uh, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, but he had a revelation that sugar beets was the future of Utah and the church, and he put everything into sugar beets. Now, who was this? Woods, Woodruff? This was uh, Wilford Woodruff, and he even said uh, somewhere in here, I have it, uh, but he said that basically he said that he would bankrupt the church if he had to to get the sugar beet industry going. And that's basically what he did. Uh, he almost bankrupt the church trying to get the sugar beet uh, factory going. Of course, this all started during the polygamy raids at the same time. And he's trying to get. And so the bank, the, the church ends up almost bankrupt trying to start this uh, sugar beet fact, uh, this sugar beet process. But eventually they get the sugar beets running and the church is able to buy up some of this, these factories that they tried to start up at pennies on the dollar. Uh, and they start producing sugar. Well, sugar was like king at this time. It was just like oil and, uh, you know, all of the all of the big trusts that, you know, railroads, oil, banking, all of those. Sugar was one of those big trusts. And it, back east, it was owned uh, by a, a guy. I can't remember his name, Halverson or something like that, owned the sugar trust. It was called American Sugar. 
and they got in trouble with the anti-sugar trust issues and were getting broken up. Well, so they started looking for sugar places that they could buy. The church happened to own Utah, Idaho sugar at the time. And they said they needed money. They were looking for a place. So the two married up and, and formed this, this, this uh, consolidation. American sugar was kind of the parent company of United uh, of Utah, Idaho sugar. Yeah. And people say that the reason that they, in, that the people back East invested so heavily in it was because the Mormon church had complete control of the people. And when you think about that, who was raising sugarcane back in this time? Who, who raised all the sugarcane and, and did all the hard work in the fields for the sugar industry? It was the slaves. Slaves. You had the slaves in Cuba, the slaves in the South. Uh, Louisiana was a big sugarcane producer. Civil War came, no more slaves. No more slaves. But it still, it was a very labor-intensive uh, So Utah could get its people to do the work. Utah had high so immigrants, poor immigrants coming in, needed work. Sugar Beets is a good place to work. And the church had complete control over these people. And, and that's exactly what ended up happening. They started uh, taking advantage of that they controlled completely the market. They had conference talks about that you need to support Utah, Idaho sugar, that the <laughs> local farmers could only grow for Utah, Idaho sugar. The sugar beets could only be grown for Utah, Idaho sugar. They basically kept the prices down in the market by, by getting rid of all the other competition. And they started building all of these uh, sugar mills. And you can see them still today. If you go south of, uh, pay, uh, south of uh, Spanish Fork, there's a big one sitting right off the side of the road is an old yeah. sugar mill. Um, yeah. I think you're up in Idaho Falls, Sugar City, Idaho, that area. Yep. The sugar first City, one was in Lehigh. Lehigh was the first one they yep. did. Um, Layton, I'm here in, in the Layton area. Layton had one. It, it Sugar became king in Utah. And... The church owns as it all still the is. <laughs> if I could just interject, right? It, it still is. is. Yes. It's now just swig. And yeah. <laughs> it's one of the approved vices. I'll drink to that. That's, sure. That's right. That's right. So, so the church got in trouble with these with this uh, antitrust because they were controlling completely the market, and the farmers were complaining that they had the lowest rate in in the country for. The, they were getting the lowest rates for their pro, for their produce. So the church, by controlling its people, was keeping the prices down. And then on top of it, they got to take, you know, 10% of whatever they made because they were all members of the church. They're getting the tithing off of it, but they're getting them at a reduced rate and they're producing them in their factories that they would then sell. And then they tell the members, you got to buy Utah, Idaho sugar. You got to support the church. We got to be self-sufficient. Against their own members. Against their own members. Mm -hmm. and, their own farmers. And this began, you know, it began as a self-sufficiency thing. That's what it began as. But right. as the war and stuff came, they became part of a national economy. And right. the church wasn't prepared to be a national economy. And the national economy wasn't ready for a business that was run by ecclesiastical leaders telling its people what to do. And the two yeah. had a bunch of clashes. And so... Uh, Utah Idaho Sugar was owned by the church. Joseph F. Smith was the president of the of the church of the sugar company, 
he got called back to uh, Washington to uh, to give testimony in the Sugar Act trials, and he refused to go. He said, "I'm not going until they they had to." basically uh what's it called an affidavit or whatever you have to do to force you to come back that yeah. he he made him do that to make him come back before he would testify because he knew nothing about the sugar industry uh-huh. uh the people who were running the sugar industry who were doing all of these acts that the they were they were under investigation from the uh department of justice uh i think department of agriculture there was like four different government agencies that were uh investigating Utah, Idaho, sugar for antitrust uh, things. And guess who happened to be running the Idaho sugar companies at the time? Uh, let, let's read this. It says, Floyd T. Jackson of the Department of Justice filed a complaint charging the Utah, Idaho company of profiteering and obtaining undue, exorbitant, immoderate, excessive, and monstrous profits on sugar. <laughs> Merrill Nibley, Charles Nibley's son, remember that name? I mean, that was one of the highlighted names of the people that came in. The state the uh, vice president and assistant manager of the company was arrested. The company embarked on a propaganda campaign in the Utah market. The Idaho Division of Department of Justice filed charges against the company on June 10, 1920, specifically charging Heber J. Grant, Charles W. Nibley, and Thomas R. Cutler, among others. Warrants for their arrest were issued on June 21st, 1920. Charles Nibley was Hugh Nibley's grandfather. Yes, and he was the uh, president. Uh, he was the presiding bishop uh, at the he time. He was the presiding bishop. So yeah. he was in charge of getting the church's yeah. finances, him and Heber J. Grant, who later became the prophet. They all had arrest warrants put out. This stemmed from after the war, there were price controls on sugar and uh, they had to sell it for a certain price. And Utah, Idaho said, we're not doing it. And they went and had a board vote and the board voted that they were going to sell the sugar and they were supposed to sell it at like 13 cents a pound and they sold it at 28 cents a pound. Um, So uh, it turned out they, 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 they didn't charge Heber J. They, dropped the charges on Heber J. Grant because he actually voted against raising the, the, the prices, but the other guys on the board outvoted him. So the company still ended up ra- raising the prices and, and breaking the law. So we're going to do, this is another podcast we want to do. We're, we're going to call it like pour some sugar on me, the Joseph <laughs> Fielding Smith story or something. The Joseph Fielding Smith story. There you go. But it's it's fascinating. I got a whole book here. It's it's a book written by uh, he's actually a church historian, Matthew Godfrey, um, and it's there's an entire book on this, and it's just fascinating because on the sugar thing, on the sugar thing, because they they not only did they own the sugar mills, they owned the legislature too. So they they controlled all the labor laws, and so nothing's changed. Nothing. They couldn't do anything. The, The farmers are going. This isn't fair. And they wouldn't even have a hearing on it or anything because the church controlled the legislature. So it's a fascinating story. And we're going to tell more on that. But this is the I'm looking forward to that one. These antitrust things is what got them in trouble in 1915 that they said, oh, we need to make this more transparent because the church was paying the debts for these private companies that they were owning. They owned portions of the company and then they were using their influence to to control the company and to control the market. That is blitzoid, man. 
Wow. So again, we see several, uh, another, another potential uh, uh, leader of the church is, is involved with the law. So, okay. Uh, we're, another one. we're almost That's done. We're down to the last, uh, the last part here. And then we've got a couple other things to go over. So. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. We're doing good. See, is it my turn now? We took that little detour into sugar, which was fabulous. I feel like I'd like a donut now. I don't know. There's something <laughs> about it. So maybe when we're done. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, after decades of surplus spending and careful planning, the faithful contributions of Latter-day Saints resulted in the church building significant reserves, much of which church leaders reinvested save for the future, or used for humanitarian and urban renewal projects around the world. Beginning in 2013, the church produced an annual report detailing its spending on humanitarian efforts. In 2019, church president Russell M. Nelson directed the merger of the Corporation of the Presiding Bishop and the Corporation of the President, and the resulting corporation was renamed Everybody say it with me, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, that same year, the First Presidency reiterated their commitments to using sacred church funds wisely. This is a quote, we take seriously the responsibility to care for the tithes and donations received from members. The vast majority of these funds were used are used immediately to meet the needs of the growing church, including more meeting houses, temples, education, humanitarian work, and missionary efforts throughout the world. So, so there you have it. You have that's it. That's the yeah, end of the essay. Yep, that's the end of the essay. That takes that's us up it. to modern See, time. Everything is glorious, good, and incredible. That's right. You can just we love in. this place. It's so <laughs> sweet to belong to this church. <laughs> they, 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 and they've done some good things, and I'm not going to take that away. The church does do some good things. There's some good humanitarian, absolutely. But some of these you look at, um, you know that. You, you look at that highlighted section in the last paragraph there, that same year, 2019, the first presidency reiterated their commitment to using sacred church funds wisely. Why did they do that? What happened in 2019? The Wait, whistleblower. I know, this. I know the answer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the whistleblower. Yeah. The whistleblower came out and it's just like the, oh, we cooperated with these people. It's like in 2019, we reiterated that. They reiterated yeah. it because a whistleblower came out and said, hey, they have all these money that nobody knows about that they said that they weren't using on, you know, building the malls and stuff. And they really were. And it was coming from tithing funds. And now yeah. all of a sudden they're well, everything the church, everything the church has, does, builds, steals, whatever. If it's from money, it's based on tithing. Yeah, somehow they wouldn't they, be able to do anything without the base of tithing. So, realistically, everything they do is tithing money. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah, even even their for-profit businesses that are making profits, they switch those back and forth. They move them back and forth is whatever gives them the best tax. You know, if they're right, right. Let, let's move it, let's take this farmland and we'll make it farmland and we'll make it tax exempt. And then when for 20 years, we'll get a tax exemption on it uh, and then we'll move it and make condos on it. We'll move it to our for profit. You know, so for 20 years, they didn't have to pay any taxes on it. And now they move it to their for profit. They sell it. They profit off of it. You know, they get the. So, yeah, they play that game all the time and they, they make money on it. So 
So the question is, and we all know this, and this some of these slides coming up, they come off of the uh, John DeLynn, uh, RFM, uh, Rebecca uh, and uh, Spencer were doing this. Uh, all did this show on the on the Widow's Might Report. Some of these right. came out of that Widow's Might Report from, from that show. Uh, so if you want to show those, we just look at some of those numbers and see what those really show. And, you know, they make it sound like these were humanitarian urban renewal projects around the world, like they're building, you know, uh, Sorry, I'm trying to get coordinated. Is yeah, this no the problem. It sounds like fun. they're building wells in Congo or that they're, you know, doing, uh, you know, helping poor countries in urban development is what it sounds like they're doing. And, and what we find is, you know, that if you look at this graph here on the left um, of, of the billion dollars that they claim, $906 billion dollars. Only 80 to 100 million or 10 percent of that actually went to humanitarian aid. The rest of that went to themselves. It's basically internal church welfare uh, that, you know, they counted missionary program as 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 humanitarian effort. So they're out teaching the gospel to people who they then convert, who then pay money to them. And that's considered humanitarian uh, yeah, I'd like absolutely. to know what salary they prescribe to the volunteers. I would, I would, their hourly rate, I guess, is more what it would be. I'm not sure. So I would love to know what a missionary should I would, make or what a, I would love what a missionary is worth. Yeah. But it's, again, don't you think the widows might report? I mean, it was just absolutely incredible. If anybody has a chance to work their way through that, it was just amazing the amount of research that was put into it and just the insights. I thought it was incredible. And I think another interesting point to make is that. Every time the church has become more transparent or said, okay, okay, it's an external force, wouldn't you say, that's acting on them? There, something has come out, there's a whistleblower, there's some kind of antitrust accusation, you know, anytime they seem to voluntarily um, become more transparent, it's a direct reaction to something externally that has happened. And I think that also, I think that happens not just in finance. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Which is why we have to do what we're doing, um, because yeah. no, that's a good point. It's the it's the pressure from outside that makes them start yeah. doing these things, and and you look and in fact this pressure you look at that graph on the right you know it shows how much they gave between 1985 and 2015 they claim they gave 2.3 billion dollars, uh, mm -hmm. and once that was exposed of how much they had and how little they gave. All of a sudden, that one on the left, where they gave $1 billion in one year, the church realized and said, oh, we've got to do something. But again, did they actually do something or did they just try to be non-transparent and make it look like they gave a billion dollars when they really weren't given any more than they gave? And that's that's what we see is they just uh, it goes back to that reporting. They reported something differently than they reported before. So it looked like they gave a lot more different. of it. Right. Uh, and and they again we're not transparent with what they're doing, and we're seeing that these reports they're giving are again not very useful because we don't know what they're using them for. So humanitarian aid, they could do so much more with humanitarian aid, especially with all the problems in the world today, and and uh, it's a very small percentage of what they're giving. Well, um, even even if they did give that billion, uh, we don't we honestly don't know. I mean, how much of that was given to something that would directly benefit the church? They've done that before, too. So even though they can claim, yeah, we're doing charity here and there and thus and so forth, a lot of it now we're finding is just be the reason they gave to that particular charity or did this particular thing with their money is because directly or indirectly, 
it put it right back in the church's lap. Exactly. It comes and back to one billion dollars is still far under one percent of their total wealth. They aren't even sending tithing amounts of money to charity. Yep. Yep. And again, that goes back to they're not a charity, they're a religious organization. So they don't have to give it away. They can keep as much as right. they want. Because yep. they're not a charitable organization. Well, Jesus said, hoard your money for a rainy day. I know it's somewhere there. <laughs> That's my favorite scripture, mastery scripture. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I read it every day. I do the same thing now. Yeah. So just a couple uh, more slides, and then we'll let your uh, audience go. But uh, Your captive audience captive go, audience. right? A couple other <laughs> issues here. Uh, you can see this is some of the urban renewal projects that they did, and Amazingly, if you look at each of these, City Creek Center, I, I couldn't get a picture with this, but from City Creek Center, you can see the Salt Lake Temple in the background. Mm -hmm. um, the one there on the lower right is Mesa, Arizona, where they did an urban renewal of the neighborhoods around the temple. Uh, they gave money to the city to do urban renewal. Uh, who, you know, yeah, the, the, the neighborhood prospered from it, sure. But so did the church. The church prospered from That's that. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, sorry. No. I jumped the gun on you. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the one on the left is the Philadelphia Temple and that high-rise tower off to the right, owned by the church. That's their development that went on with it. So, again, they developed something that they're now selling. Is that humanitarian? Is that urban? They're not building wells in in uh, in the Congo. They're They're building real estate empires. And that's yeah. really what we're seeing out of this. Yes, I'm sure they do some of the other stuff, but this is this what Jesus taught? I don't think so. Uh, you know, this is not what people think their money is going for. And if that's what you want to give your money for is to build this again, as long as you know that's what it's going for, great. But, that's but, the key. Yeah, but, but and I'm... You know, I come across as somewhat snooty when I say this. I, I don't mean to, I promise. But when I was in Salt Lake, I, I was, I, I, it's mortifying. I have never seen this before. Coming off the interstate ramp, now see, I'm in my fancy car and I get to wear good clothes and all that. I get that, honest. But when I pulled off the interstate to turn on to State Street to head up toward Temple Square, uh, it, there was an entire cardboard town mm -hmm. under the interstate ramp, people in tents, sleeping bags, cardboard houses on both sides of the interstate. And it was that way at every cotton picking off ramp. And everywhere throughout the streets of Salt Lake City, you see these poor people begging. They're walking... I, I never saw anything like that at all throughout my 20s, my teenagers, 20 years. There were no people out on the street begging you for money or living in cardboard shanties underneath the interstates. And then every single bathroom, every single extra room in any of the buildings, the restaurants, etc., are locked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going, what, what has happened here in Salt Lake city? They have thousands of homeless and the wider they build out city Creek, 
Temple Square, the church office building, when my buddy and I were walking and going through City Creek Mall, and I, I know, I get it. I'm one of the privileged. I understand this. I get to go into the Mall of Mall. Did you see anybody except the well-dressed and rich? Anywhere in the great big skyscraper part of Salt Lake City? Oh, hell no. They don't even let them even walk there. It's and, appalling. And I think I take it, except, you know, I said, if you want to pay into this, that's fine. But the church, if this is what they're going to do with it, they need to be paying taxes on this money because they're, yeah. they're getting this tax break because they're supposed to be taking care of these type of people. And yeah. the government says, if you're going to take care of them, we'll give you a tax break. But if you're building real estate and doing all of this and the, the community's not getting tax revenue off of that no. to solve these other problems out there, that's no. a problem. So it's everybody's problem, whether you're whether you're LDS in the church, out of the church. If you're out of the church, you're paying higher taxes because the church owns so much of this property that they're not paying taxes on that it increases the tax burden on everybody else, everybody else. those who aren't members. Yeah. Uh, and everyone loses people that need help people that want to donate everyone loses so i totally agree yeah think how much more money salt lake city would have if all the properties owned by the church were taxable and paid property taxes to help deal with that problem downtown and we saw it today at at general conference we went to general conference uh we dropped not into conference we couldn't get a ticket no but we we went but we we were not in conference we were sort of of and around conference conference. yeah Yeah. (laughs) we were downtown but yeah no it's absolutely heartbreaking it absolutely is it was such a juxtaposition to see everyone walking you know so many people walking to the conference center and then just see some of the other situations it was absolutely heartbreaking and it was so bad that uh we we had driven up and uh uh rebecca and her husband had dropped off their car and we, and then I drove them up and I was going to go back the rest of the way to my house and they were going to ride tracks back down to their car. And we couldn't find a tra- track station where we dared drop uh, Rebecca off no, <laughs> because the homeless situation was so bad down there. No, uh, it was ended up just driving her back it to the cars just, because no, it, 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 was, it didn't make sense. It was so it was really overwhelming i mean it absolutely was if you haven't i have not been downtown for a for a while and it was was, yeah i I almost had shock like i did when i got to st louis on my mission and i thought wait a minute this this is my salt lake city that i loved as a kid well and then from the interstate you know uh driving through salt lake it was always such fun to look over and say, okay, there's the temple. There's the temple. Yeah. You can't see anything except great big office buildings. Yeah. And the church I mean, great big office buildings. Yeah. It's all about the money. Yep. So let's go to, let's go to, uh, we got two more slides. Um, uh, the last, uh, that, uh, Oh, Am I already ahead of you? No, no, uh, <laughs> no you're, that's go the next slide that has the uh, first presidency on it. I don't have one that has the first presidency. Oh. You oh, only okay. sent me 24 slides. We may not have the entire oh, slide deck. Oh, 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 there sorry. you go. Yeah, you I only don't know what happened. The last slide should have been one that uh, I call follow the prophet. And I'm going to have to describe it to you then. Um, I'm sorry. Maybe I can look for it real quick. 
Uh, oh, I think it's fine. Up, I think Lennon can just describe it. It may not have it. converted, but on this, yeah. follow the profit slide. I have one. I have 10, 10 profits. Uh, and with that, we kind of followed that, uh, the 10 most wanted slide that we had earlier. <laughs> uh, the first slide, uh, th these are the profits of the church that we we're told had the revelation and control the money. We already went through Joseph Smith uh, with the treason and the bigamy and the fraud and the treasure digging. Brigham Young, the counterfeiting, the murder, the bigamy. John Taylor was uh, counterfeiting, uh, two counts of counterfeiting and bigamy. Wilford Woodruff, the fourth president, uh, fled his arrest warrant for bigamy, so he was pursued by federal government, uh, was breaking the law. Lorenzo Snow was convicted of bigamy and served 11 months in prison uh, for his bigamy, so he's the fifth president of the church. Joseph F. Smith fled arrest warrant and was in hiding for bigamy for seven years. Uh, and he was also taken to a trial for attempted manslaughter when he, as an apostle, uh, beat his neighbor with his cane uh, and uh, hit him a couple times with his cane and, and uh, injured him for life. Uh, and so he was uh, tried for attempted manslaughter. But of course, you're never going to convict a apostle in Salt Lake City, and they ended up dropping the charges. Um, uh, he was also charged with unlawful cohabitation after the manifesto. This uh, He continued to live with his wives after the second manifesto, uh, and so he was uh, charged with unlawful cohabitation. Heber J. Grant fled arrest warrant for unlawful cohabitation. He had an arrest warrant filed for antitrust violations uh, as well, and that was the one that was dropped. So uh, there's our next president. And then we drop, we, we jump up. And so we see that, you know, through the first seven presidents, every one of them was in trouble with the law. The church on, law I got it. overrode the federal <laughs> law. There was no, there, there was no respect for the federal law. And that oh, just continued go. through the church. And so the last one, there we go. The last one there with Gordon, uh, you know, I've got Gordon B. Hinckley, Thomas Monson and Russell M. Nelson. They were all involved in the SEC and I said fine for the church was actually fine for the fraud, but it was for the fraud that was, con, you know, committed under their uh, their stewardship. You look yeah. at that. That's 10 out of the 17. I think there's been 17. Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, Joseph F. Smith. He, didn't you have that story from Joseph F. Smith and his cane? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Gordon Hinckley. Yeah. Look at that, you guys. Holy nightmare for a TBM. There, of course, there, this, is just, this is just down on Mormon lies. Yeah, there, there's no respect for the federal law. The church has always had this. We, we follow our law. We follow God's law. It's a higher law. And whatever we decide, uh, the, the federal government can. And Akeem Kamara says, I want that slide, Landon. I can't blame him. We'll see what we can do for you, Akeem. I, I've got a copy of it, and uh, so does Landon. So, yeah, that, yeah, that's that needs to be a poster, you guys, as far as it, that goes. So it, it really lays out that, uh, you know, when you want to say the church has always been honest with their finances, uh, it, it it just, you know, it 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 defies uh, uh, all all logic because <laughs> yeah. they haven't. They have always been the same way that we've just seen, they will hide it. They will not tell their members where the money's going. That's always mm -hmm. been the way it is. And once you understand that, again, if you want to give your money to that, that is mm -hmm. absolutely fine. 
But at a minimum, they need to be paying taxes on this money because they have an unfair advantage in business. They have an unfair advantage. My kids live in Utah. They cannot afford a house. They're both working adults with children and they can't afford houses. And the church owns so much of the property and they drive up the prices because they can outbid everybody for the properties they want. They build all these church buildings. And until they're playing on a fair playing ground with everybody else, yeah. uh, we're well, going to They have a monopoly and an advantage in, in all of that. But the advantage in spirituality, we now see the reality. Yes. They don't have that anymore. No. And the, the advantage of being able to control people whom they keep in ignorance, good people like Dan Vogel and RFM and you two and myself and Steve Pinecker and John DeLynn and all, we're not letting them get away with this shit anymore. And I apologize in advance for any Mormon who might be offended, but you can't possibly find any other better descriptive word than what we've been watching tonight with the stupid, heinous approach that these guys have taken. Yeah, and this stuff is is hard to find. Uh, you know, I, I actually saw someone had said on Joseph Smith that he was actually convicted of a felony and, and attempted manslaughter, but I could never find the source for that. So I, I, I just put you down- Joseph F. Smith? Are you talking about Joseph F. Smith? And Joseph F. Smith, yeah, yeah. that he was actually yeah. convicted. So but is, pretty is, pretty he did not beat a man to death? He didn't Willard Richard style. His cows <laughs> came on his property, and Joseph F. Smith was known for his furious. He was, he was a, a very hothead. hothead. And this was while he was an apostle. Yeah. The guy's cows came on his property, and he went over and he beat him uh, with his cane. They, the man was about 10 years older than him, and the man was said that his life would be shortened. The doctors told him his life would be shortened as a result of the beating right. he took. Um, but, of course... He's an apostle of the Lord, and they came to the trial, and it all worked it out. Um, and he he forgave yeah, you know, him and released the charges. You know what, bro, that, that 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 uh, that nice little scoop. So that, well, I I am one of the church leaders and all. Maybe that's why they felt they had to make so much money because that kind of clout, mm -hmm. in my opinion, from what I'm seeing and in, in conversations and all, it's just not there anymore i mean and just to tell you what i mean just as as an example um my my own mom 92 years old absolutely staunch faithful she puts russell nelson to shame for righteousness i am not kidding <laughs> this woman is incredible last year when we asked her how did you like conference she said eh, i didn't watch it what why not? Oh, well, it's the same old, same old. Yeah. Wow. And can you think with all this money, what they could, the changes they could make in the world, how that exciting it would be to be part yeah. of this church if they would yeah. make well, changes well, in the world? The, the key to their wealth, though, Landon, the key to their wealth is to get you thinking of the next world. Exactly. We're only pilgrims here. This isn't the right world. Don't worry about, by the way, give us the money, your money from this world, but we'll promise you the great blessings in the next world. And it's like Mike in on the John DeLynn's Mormon story said, he said, it's all based on treasure digging. Yeah, Joseph could see the treasure, 
but you could never acquire it. Or at least so we yeah, they can see the treasure. Oh, you're oh, your glory in the celestial world now. Oh, folks, you can't you men especially. Oh, maybe millions of women out there. Build your own planet. You got it made, boys. But there's no treasure there. But they get to get all the goods here. Yes. It's and a that's, that's the huge advantage over any other business at gaining wealth. They take your money for something. They don't for have nothing. to deliver a product. That's right. They never ship. They never ship. They never ship. Doing is believing. That's why they emphasize yeah. that belief. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. Yeah. It's blitzoid. So, anything else, you guys? Uh, don't we have like fifty or sixty more of these? I mean, we're just warmed up. <laughs> You can literally take any of these slides. 115 people in the audience. Oh, you my guys goodness. are awesome. We love this audience. These guys rock. Looks like they've been having fun in the chat, too. Yeah, I didn't get well, to and see I have that, to say, so can I say, Carrie, that we, you can tell that Landon is extraordinarily passionate about sugar beets. I mean, he literally almost <laughs> talks about nothing else right? to any That's of us sweet. that interact with him socially. I've got a so whole book just, here. I'm going through. Oh, it my the, goodness. Look at this. Yeah. crazy as yeah, me. Yeah, no, no wonder okay. we get along. So we were hoping, Landon, that when we do our episode, or helping Carrie, that when we do our episode on Mormonish, that you would come on with us to talk about the beets, because that's your heritage. The sugar beets are in your oh. blood. I can tell. And so I think it would be awesome. So maybe we can I, set that up I if you'd like to come on. Yeah, what yeah, a nice invitation. Yeah, because honestly, I, I who else would come on to talk about beets? We couldn't think of anyone else. So, <laughs> so well, it's you. And you know what we'll do? We'll just beat it. Beat it, beat it. There's a lot of songs like Landon mentioned, pour some sugar on me and beat it. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. So, okay. yeah, that's good. That could have a lot yeah, of fun. It's, it's going to be a sweet episode, no doubt. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, let's do Yeah, let's do that. I'll come yeah, on to I think we'll do it. Yep, we'll do it. Stay yeah. tuned, everybody. Yeah, yeah that's going to be amazing because that, that, I, I remember that entire episode, man. Yeah. Really, truly, it, it was right here in my own hometown. And it was well, a, and a lot deal. of people don't it was know. A big deal when they shut that big fact yeah in that's fact, what i was gonna say they don't know i still got picture the silos and all the old factory yep. is still there someone in the chat was saying the uh there's several uh old sugar factories in some of the like shelly idaho and outside of blackfoot idaho and i mean they're still all over but yeah that's what if he asked yeah. and it was just their own people now yeah you know I mean, they they benefited from having sugar inland, but they, you know, they didn't prosper like the church prospered. No, they exploited. They, they could have, you know. And I look at eastern Idaho even today, and I always say, why is this so economically depressed compared to, like, the Salt Lake area? Uh, well, you know, you know, another part of the problem is the, and I, um, I'm going to just tell you in advance, and this is probably going to label me. And I probably, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go. <laughs> Carrie thinks twice. It does happen sometimes. <laughs> well, the way I want, the way I want to say it is extremely straightforward and, and, okay, here's how else. Okay. You know why? God, Idaho is so depressed because the Mormons in the legislature voted and convinced everyone to make it a right-to-work state. 
And they chased out the unions and chased out all the workers' rights to work. And we're lucky to make a dime an hour after taxes. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the unions, they tried to establish the unions in the sugar beet plants. And that'll be in the episode. And the church <laughs> beat it down. The church beat, beat it down. down. <laughs> so all roads lead back to beats. I'm telling you. It yeah, sounds boring, but it's fascinating. Yeah, what they've convinced everybody in Idaho through their absolute bullshit brainwashing. And because Idaho can't quite put it together to say no, a simple two-letter word, uh, they, they have virtually enslaved the state to their good yeah so i mean that i know that makes me sound like sour grapes and all. i i get it just come live in the state for a few years and you'll get it real quick i, li- I lived there for about five years in yeah, Napa. the weather is always much better here but yeah yeah there's just something about the politics and the, i i shouldn't get into this subject because i'm kind of yeah <laughs> Shut up, hot button, hot button. Oh, I I would be honored to come onto your show and let, let yeah, let's yeah. continue this discussion. I think we do. This yeah. is just so rich in history that absolutely yeah. every one of us probably can relate to in so many yeah. ways. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just history. I mean, it's a pattern that continues. That's what's interesting to me. You can delve into it, but then you can see echoes of it today, and it it all goes back and forth. And so it's very relevant. It's very relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, you you begin to understand why MLMs are so popular in Mormon yeah. culture when you start yeah. understanding how they controlled uh, certain industries, and you know uh, the stake president would tell you you buy sugar from here. Mm-hmm. That's that a good point. You start it. You start seeing where these things came from and yeah. and why they're popular. It's in our my blood. Brother, my in brother our constantly blood. told me about the latest rage in Utah. You come up, oh, you've got to join this. All right, I'll, I'll listen to a spiel. How much? <laughs> well, this one's only one hundred and ninety-nine to get in, and all that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm <laughs> do you own shares in the Dream Mine, Carrie? I just feel like you're the kind of person that might. <laughs> about the thirtieth time he showed up, and this one was the real deal. This is it. My state president knows this. He knows the he knows the 70 who's the head of this and they're good friends and they have prayed this one will work, Carrie. And and he said the the 70 has made a million five in the last two weeks, and the state president has made uh, three quarters of a million in two weeks. So this is the real thing. And I told I told my brother, I said, I'll tell you what, I, I said, I'm in when you show me your check stub of half a million two weeks from now in the bank. There you go. <laughs> and from that point on, he never, and that was 20 years ago. He never posted. With <laughs> and you're money. still waiting. <laughs> yeah. And, and he never did make any yeah. money on any of the 20 he joined. So yeah, I've got personal experience with that too. Wow. So. It's crazy stuff. So, okay, you guys, I love you. This has been so much fun. It's been so educational. Look at this. We still have our full audience, you guys. That's how good you are. Shocked. I, I love my audience. I love your audience. And and thank you so much to the audience. Thanks for sticking with us. I told you. I told you these guys were going to be fun to listen to, and they had a whopping program tonight. Did I not? Now again. Pass the word on, if you would. 
to my audience, I've in, I've accepted their wonderful invitation. And with Landon's research skills and Rebecca's yeah, awesome. practical understanding and research skills and the backyard professor's ridiculous antics, we're bound to put on another good show <laughs> on the sugar beet stuff. So yeah, keep keep in touch with us and we will uh we will put some more together for you. And uh we're we're gonna head out now though. So appreciate all of your support and love and I hope you enjoyed the show. It looks like you did. Hey, you guys, Landon, Reb, uh, it looks like up here I've got three laughing faces. I've never seen those before. So apparently we've really been a good uh, a good, good uh, show tonight. Well, are they never laughing seen... with us or at us? Yeah, that's that's a, yeah, there might be a very fine us. line there, but I'll take it as a good sign. That's okay. <laughs> I got used to being laughed at when I was in first grade on. <laughs> well, I don't mind that. So you got to laugh and have some fun. So, oh, they say y'all are sweeter than sugar. I think they're talking to each other. Sweeter than sugar beets. That's it. Yeah. Oh, we've got rainbow hearts from the, hey, hey, hey. Let me acknowledge right here the former world champion wrestler. I've had him on my show, oh, Mark. Awesome. Oh, wow. You, my friend, look at that rainbow hearts. Look at this guy. He's a champion in way more ways than just wrestling. So thank you for being here, Mark. Good to see you. And my dear friend, Debbie Donovan and Lee Mortensen. Oh, thank you. And IKU studies. I've seen you post some, say some, and Don Smith. Gosh, I'm, now I'm going to have to go through. Oh, Gail Capson. I'm going to have to go through and say hi to all of them. Here we go. Jewel Brown. It's like Whopper Room. He's <laughs> Heather Reddick. I mean, all these guys are such a... Jeff Taylor. I'm telling you. Tiger. I, 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 I'm going to say that because that's how he spells his name. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Hollis. Good man. Oh, Mormon Book Reviews. Is it Steve? Hi, Steve. We need to Beaver. call him tomorrow, Steve. We have stuff to work out. So. Yeah, baby. He just got in, apparently. Yes. Welcome, my friend. Our friend. All our friends. So, anyway, yeah. Uh, good to see all of you. I'm glad I'm Jeff Taylor. I said, looks like, oh, you guys are just awesome. RF William Charles. Yes. Good to see you, bud. I love William. We have so much fun in the chat. That man is brilliantly funny. We have so much fun in the chat on Mormonism Live. I think sometimes Maven threatens to kick both of us off because we're making everybody laugh too hard. He has just got a brain like a genius, man. So anyway, I, we're still recording. I got to be careful and say nice. Okay. Okay. You guys. I'm sorry You're for keeping me late too. Yeah, we are. Live, so. All right. Thanks, you guys. Good to see you all. Appreciate you. Uh, don't forget, I've got uh, new podcasts, the listening ones on the backyardprofessor.org for your listening pleasure. And don't forget Mormonish and the book club. And these two are just doing sensational podcasts. I'm really, the thing that makes me mad right now these days is I'm not retired because there's so many fantastic podcasts. Yeah. Have you guys noticed that? I mean, yeah, same yeah. thing There's here. Not enough yeah. time, not enough time yeah. at all. It's yeah. just fabulous. Although, although it does make work go faster when I do have to travel, I turn on your podcast and the limb and RFM and all these guys. So fun stuff. Wait, okay. In that order. 
Oh my I'm never going to reveal what Eric I'm totally kidding, John and our fam. We would never presume to be. You're going to get me kicked in the shins, Rebecca. I'm just saying. All right, you guys, we're going to head out of here. Thank you again so much. You two stick around. I'll talk to you in a minute after the ending. <laughs>